No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome back to Banal of America's Winter of Weirdness. Uh, we've been gone for like two months. I'll get into what happened uh, at the end of the show, but it was an unexpected hiatus. I'm telling you folks, this winter of weirdness is cursed. Uh, this is this is we couldn't even get it together last winter, and now here we are. And, it was dealt a, uh, a difficult blow at the start of the year, but we're back now. I'm very excited to say, and uh, we've got some great shows lined up beginning tonight uh, with uh, with a very special guest, uh, Zelia Edgar. Who, if you haven't heard of Zelia Edgar yet, you're you're going to want to check out her stuff. And uh, thankfully, we're going to be talking to her here for the next couple of hours. Um, she's behind. I guess you could call it almost like this franchise now. Uh, the just another tinfoil hat. Uh, she has a fantastic YouTube channel where she details all kinds of various sort of uh, classic cases. Um, it's very it, – it, I, I kind of think of it almost like uh, – for folks who like Saucer Life, it's it's kind of like a video version of, of Saucer Life in a way. Uh, it's sort of this this awesome – appreciation for classic weird stories and stuff like that. And she's been doing that for a while, and uh, now she's got a book that just came out, and that is uh, Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents, and I believe that's from Beyond the Fray Publishing, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents is the name of the book, and we're going to get into that tonight. We're going to talk about uh, crazy creature encounters and uh, run-ins with bizarre beings. So I'm really looking forward to it, and... uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So welcome to the show, Zilia. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on the show tonight. Really excited to be here. Now, we always start out when we get the guest on for the first time. Uh, first time guest, we do uh, sort of the bio, the background, you know. Who is Zilia Edgar? How did you get in- interested in this? Uh, I was really, I found it really cool and, and, and interesting and fascinating that, uh in the foreword to the book, Chad Lewis mentions that that he first met you when you were like 11 years old at a at a paranormal convention. So you you've been into this for pretty much you know your whole life or or for, for the vast majority of your life, right? So you know since childhood, um, which is really cool because I think that's uh, that kind of resonates with a lot of people. So tell us you know the bio, the background. How did you get into all this? And and sort of how did I often ask people who come on the show? It's like there's lots of folks listening to the show. There's lots of folks who watch your, your videos. It's like it takes a certain sort of mindset to be like, okay, now I'm going to be 
now I'm going to do something. I'm going to be a creator. I'm going to I'm going to throw my voice out there. So you know, how did you get into this, and how did you decide to sort of start doing stuff? Well, you're absolutely right. This has been um, pretty much a lifelong interest for me. Um, I can't remember a time where I wasn't intrigued by, you know, the strange and unusual, even before it was a definite, you know, interest in the quote-unquote paranormal. Um, I blame part of this on growing up in the fantastically weird state of Wisconsin. I mean, we've got three UFO capitals of the world, two infamous cannibals, and more sightings of the dog man than you can shake a stick at. Um, so I think that <laughs> that definitely kind of had an influence, you know, on my subconscious as I was growing up. But, too, when I was, like, really young, um, I had the absolute just good fortune of being able to spend a lot of time um, in southwestern Wisconsin in the Driftless area around Platteville. Um, that's where my mom's mom and her family was from, so I spent a lot of time there growing up. And, you know, at that time, I, you know, was lucky enough not just to hear, like, you know, personal accounts from family members because a lot of people from my mom's side of the family have had kind of, you know, more than their fair share of run-ins with the paranormal, whether it was the haunted house where she grew up to, you know, multiple cases of UFO sightings. Uh, my grandma even remembers when she was a girl of hearing this story. Um, she lived on a farm kind of in the rural area around Platteville. And apparently one of her neighbors had this big hairy arm actually burst in through a window when she was just a girl. So not only was I, <laughs> excuse me, lucky enough to hear all of those personal accounts, but too, I also was kind of enveloped in the folklore of that area. You know, specifically like the Nodolf house was one of the very first cases that um, I was treated to as a kid. And so I had this kind of general interest. And then when I was eight years old, it was really cemented because my mom remembered growing up in the 70s and seeing all of those like documentaries on Bigfoot. And so she thought to herself, okay, you know, this is kind of, this is a fun urban legend. You know, it's nothing too scary because it's so ridiculous that there might be this giant primate living in America. You know, so this is something <laughs> that I can talk to Zelia about. And, you know, it'll be fun for a while and then I'll forget about it. Well, her plan sort of worked because I became obsessed. You know, that was when I decided, man, I'm going to be a cryptozoologist. It was my life's mission. I was going to finally one day bring in a Bigfoot Live, of course, because I loved animals. So, like, you know, that was my life's goal. However, for my mom, it kind of backfired because she started realizing sort of gradually, she's like, I don't think this is an urban legend. <laughs> you know, and she started realizing that as a matter of fact, lots of, you know, normal, sane people are reporting sightings of Bigfoot. So from that point on, she actually has a pretty devout interest in Sasquatch now. Um, but, yeah, that was when everything kind of changed for me. And I just, you know, everything I could find, everything I could pick up at the local library on, especially cryptozoology, that was my main thing. So when I was yeah. 10, I met famed Wisconsin dogman researcher Linda Godfrey. And then, yeah, mm -hmm. like around a year later, I met Chad Lewis. And the rest is really history. I mean, seeing those two Wisconsin researchers you know, as a kid, too, you see two adults taking this stuff seriously and kind of building a life around it. Um, that just, you know, that was really important for me. So, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, yeah, it kind of, like, shows you that you can do this. You can grow up and, like, oh, yeah. And, and, yeah, keep doing it. So where did the – what is the origin of Just Another Tinfoil Hat? So, yeah. As like I, the name, I, I mean, the name. Some, in, oh, the name, sure. And, and that, the <laughs> name and then how, you know, what? How, how did this all come together, I guess? That's probably the best yeah. way to put it. Oh, yeah. Well, the name actually was kind of funny because for some reason, you know, I was, oh, gosh, it was probably 2016, 2017 when I started the channel. And really, I was kind of just looking at, for an outlet for my research. I had done a few, you know, articles and things like that, but I really wanted to try and build something. 
And so I was like, hey, you know, I guess I'll give YouTube a shot. And so I had that idea and I was like, you know, kind of compiling a few cases that I wanted to really talk about. And I was agonizing over the name because I am like, I'm one of those people that just is very indecisive about naming things. And so for seriously, like a couple of weeks, I was subjecting my entire family to like, oh, what should I do? What What about this one? What about that one? What about this? How does that sound? And so finally I told my mom, because she was like, well, what are you looking for? And I said, well, you know, I want people to know that this is something a little, you know, a little different. You know, they can expect some kind of just different ways of looking at this. You know, I don't want to come across as just another tinfoil hat. And she stopped and she looked at me and she was like, well, that's it. I was like, what are you talking about? What's it? And she was like, that's the name, just another tinfoil hat. (laughs) And so, you know, I was like, hey, it has a ring to it. Um, You know, I don't tend to take myself too seriously. I take the paranormal very seriously, but myself, not so much. So I was like, you know what? Yeah, that works. And yeah, um, my YouTube channel, I really started it kind of as just an outlet. You know, I'm really, I am intrigued by um, the patterns that exist between you know, all these different sorts of cases, things that we would conventionally think are from separate fields of research, you know, like ufology, cryptozoology, spectrology. And so I kind of like focus on doing kind of a case-by-case, taking a really deep look at it and trying to figure out, you know, what are kind of some of the commonalities between, say, a Bigfoot encounter and like, you know, poltergeist encounters or UFO encounters. So, yeah, yeah that's where the YouTube channel came from. All right, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I... I, as I was saying before we started, uh, I really did love the book. I, I wrapped it up, uh, read lo- the, the speculation and conclusions and stuff uh, this afternoon. But uh, I was I was reading it throughout the week, and I really, really do love it. Uh, I thought it was awesome. Um, as I was saying to you before we came on the air, it's like these. Uh, it's very it has these different sort of bite-sized stories, um, and what I like about your style. And I, I highly recommend folks pick this book up because it, it really was uh, right in sort of my wheelhouse of, of classic cases. Um, and what I like about your style is you, you tell the story, and then you kind of like, then you're kind of like, okay, now let's let's break this apart and look at all these different weird elements and what they might mean. And I don't know, just the the way you set up the writing was really. I liked it a lot. I was like, okay, this is really cool because, uh, you know, are you reading the story and you're noticing these little weird elements and then, you know, then you, 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 Zelia, finish writing, telling the story and then you're like, okay, now let's go over these weird, weird elements you may have noticed over the <laughs> over the course of this story. So, um, it, yeah, it's really well written, really well put together. So, you know, kudos to you and, and folks can get that on uh, Amazon and all the, all the various book places. Uh, just another tinfoil hat presents. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So I was reading the book, and I kind of like because the title doesn't necessarily tell you what you're what you're digging into. So as I'm reading along in the book, I, I think by like the third or fourth or fifth uh, thing, and maybe you said this in the introduction, I like missed it or something, but I, it kind of dawned on me where I was like, oh, okay, these are classic cases of of like entity or creature encounters. These are uh, these are encounter stories, essentially. Is that is that pretty much kind of uh, hit the nail on the head? Oh yeah, and two before you know we go any further. Thank you so much for your super kind words too, because um, this book has been like kind of a lifelong goal of mine, and so it's just honestly it's surreal to me to actually have one, and I'm just so thrilled with it. So really, that means a lot. Thank you. And yeah, it is. Um, it's a collection of 23 different encounters across every pretty much conventional field of research. So, 
Yeah, and that's I, I think that's part partially why I liked it so much because to me those stories are those are the best stories, I think. Because like that takes I mean like yeah, it's they're for lack of a better term, literally almost, uh they're, they're close encounters of the third kind. They're they are they are the encounter part. Like anyone can see a UFO or see a Bigfoot or experience some kind of like ghostly thing, but it's like when there's the interaction between the phenomenon and the person. It's like that's where you get the good shit. That's where you really – that's where you have the best chance of trying to get some kind of insight into this phenomenon because it, because it's like the person's right there and they're seeing this and they're experiencing this and they're picking up all kinds of stuff way beyond like, oh, it was a weird light that flew through the sky or, or it was a Bigfoot that ran across the road. Absolutely, yeah, and – you know, too, and there's obviously worth in classifying, you know, these different manifestations by type. You know, specific, like, specifically, I always think of it in terms of, like, the big three. You know, you have cryptids, ghosts, and UFOs. Um, and, of course, there's right. a lot of worth in, like, delineating it that way. Um, but then it's true, you do get a lot of, like, you know, you'll collect all these cases, and it's like there's so many, say, UFOs, there's flybys, and then there's contact. And even with cryptid encounters, you know, there's kind of almost what we consider to be the equivalent of a flyby, pretty much just a walk-by if you're looking at Bigfoot. Um, and then there's these cases of higher contact and high strangeness. Um, and so for me, too, you know, that is where the interest is for me as well, is these cases of um, high contact and high strangeness. So, yeah. Yeah. What, and one one thing I note here in the book, uh, which I picked up, like, right away as I was reading it, maybe I, uh, it never came up, actually, I don't think, um, in the book. So I was wondering if you noticed this, too. Um is uh, I have it in the notes here as preponderance of posses. So many of these st- stories, someone encounters something, and then everybody gets like riled up, and they all, everyone in town, form, they form a posse. And it's like as I was reading the book, it's yep. like the next case, like something happens, guy sees a thing, then it's like then a posse was formed. I'm like, what the fuck? This keeps, <laughs> this keeps happening. People keep they keep forming posses. It's an interesting. Beyond the weirdness of the phenomenon, it's just a weird sort of like aspect of of human nature with these stories. Oh yeah, I, there was a specific one. I believe it was the Marlinton encounter when I did my initial video, and I referred to what happened as a mild monster panic. And someone in the comments actually said, "Hey, that would make a good uh, punk band name." I'm like, you know, that kind of would. But that's that is what you see quite often with a lot of these classic high contact encounters. Is there is you know. Honestly, it's almost like a Scooby-Doo episode or a B-movie where it's like, yeah, the townsfolk kind of get riled up. You know, I won't say there's pitchforks and torches, but there are definitely guns and flashlights in a lot of these encounters. Um, And people are really trying to figure out, hey, what exactly is this? Why did so-and-so report seeing this giant, you know, ape-like creature in lights in the sky? Um, So, yeah, I know that that human response, too, that's an aspect that is very intriguing to me because it's just when you really think about, okay, you know, someone reports a monster – and then, yeah, like 10 guys are like, oh, well, let's go, let's go, you know, rustle some bushes and try and see if we can find it. Um, it's just, it's fantastic. It's really, yeah, it says a lot about uh, human nature, I think. Because it's like this terrifying, you know, most of the time it's like this terrifying encounter or at least bewildering. And, and, and people are like, let's go, we've got to go find out what this thing is that's running around our town. Is, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, yeah. Um, let me see here now. I sent you some stories. I, I picked out three of the stories uh, that I wanted to 
to ask you about, I guess you could say, or we could explore here uh, during the show. And I have a whole bunch of other notes and everything, but uh, you sort of you've become quite the masterful storyteller. So I figure, uh, you know, people. I hate to do it to you, Zelia, but you know, you know how it is. So, <laughs> can you tell us one of these stories? Uh, I guess we'll go with the flicks one. That's the first one I picked out and sent to you, um, and then we can explore it a little bit here uh, in the conversation. But tell people this story uh, of, of a creature named Flix that named itself. Well, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, this case is fantastic. Now, I pretty much all of these cases are very near and dear to me. So, like, every single one you bring up, I'll probably say, oh, yeah, this is one of my favorites because they're all my favorites. You know, it's like highlighting yeah. the important part. Everything's highlighted. Um, but Flix <laughs> is a really intriguing case. So it occurred at the very kind of tail end of 1959 into 1960, um, in a place called Conzer Lake. It used to be called Conzer Lake. Now it's on private property. I don't know what they call it. In Lynn County, Oregon, somewhere near the towns of Millersburg and Albany. And so, you know, the first occurrence is what we would kind of consider to be pretty standard. Um, it was actually a sighting by a mint truck driver sometime in 1959. He claimed that there was this shaggy white gorilla-like creature that kept pace with his mint truck. And, it, you know, traveling about 35 miles an hour and even looked inside of the cab. So as he neared the mint distillery, apparently, it decided to vamoose. Um, so, again, that's kind of, you know, a pretty, I mean, who can say that a Bigfoot encounter is standard? You know, I mean, I think that most people would be surprised by that. But by way of Bigfoot encounters, you know, not too much high strangeness there. However, as we get into the 1960s, it gets decidedly weirder. Now, the first case that really kind of brought a lot of fame to the creature of Conzer Lake, as it would come to be called, was also known as the Ghost of Conzer Lake, which I love all of its names, including the infamous one, Flicks, which we'll get to in a second here. Um, the first case that really brought it into the forefront came from really classic demographic for creature sightings. That is a group of teenagers. So yes. sometime in July 1960, they were near the shores of Conzer Lake when two of them thought it was a bright idea to sneak around and jump out at the rest of their friends. And now this is actually kind of a weird little aspect too, but I have seen that particular detail across several cryptid encounters, including a really famous Mothman encounter where someone's like, oh, I know, we're going to scare someone. And then in process, in the middle of the prank, suddenly there's this huge anomaly. And that's exactly what happened. As they began to you know, sneak around and try and jump out, they heard this loud crashing noise and then saw a seven-foot-tall white-furred creature, um, which described by some of the group it looked like a white gorilla. Others said it looked like a polar bear. Now, not only was it strange enough to look at, it was also making a weird high-pitched fleep or fleep type noise. And one of the boys also included the detail that it made a squishy noise as it walked, almost like it was wearing wet shoes. So again, so many of these encounters, they have such bizarre, strange little details, and this one is full of them. So that's really what kicked off the Conzer Lake monster scare. However, what really brings it kind of into the limelight, makes it incredibly interesting for me, is that it kind of shows this cross-section of belief systems um, in the area at the time. Because not only were, I mean, you talk about posses, there were countless posses traipsing through the Conzer Lake area. As a matter of fact, right. one local teenage boy was almost shot accidentally when someone thought that he was the monster. Um, so you have this really strong belief that it is some sort of creature, some sort of Bigfoot-like monster. And then it gets super strange when suddenly people start reporting having telepathic communication with it. So yeah, that's what really blew my mind. Actually, yeah. Betty Westby was responsible for a lot of the articles during the Conzer Lake Monster Scare, and she spent a lot of time in the area trying to 
you know, look for it just like everyone else. Usually she would just turn up a group of kids, uh, many of them armed. However, one time she decided to bring along a local telepath who informed her, among other things, that the creature did not like to be called a monster. So this really kind of puts this case way out into the fringe of the fringe. Um, Of course, there is a precedent for Bigfoot encounters to actually have telepathic communication, not a very strong one, but it is present in many encounters. And so this lady is explaining that, you know, not only would it prefer to be referred to as a visitor or alien, but it also said that it meant no harm to the creatures of Earth and said that it was lonely. Finally, she asked what, you know, it would like to be called, and it replied, I am called Flicks. There are many like me, but I am the one called Flicks. Now, as weird as this is, there was even another case from a different person of what he believed to be another psychic message. Um, He went out to the area looking for Flicks and was armed with um, a knife. And so as he's traipsing around projecting feelings that, you know, this thing should not be afraid of him, he just wants to see it, he receives the telepathic reply, how do I know I can trust you? Um, So again, you have these claims of telepathy. Now, in amongst all of this as well, there's also mention of a possible crashed saucer in the area. So in the middle of all of this super-duper high strangeness, there is also one of the most high strangeness things I can possibly think of, kind of the holy grail, in my opinion, of cryptid encounters. From much later, October of 1964, a local paper um, had an article entitled Falsely Clings to Life about the Conzer Monster Scare, claiming that the whole thing was a hoax it actually was some guy in a suit trying to protect his illegal cash of liquor in some old man Jenkins-style scheme. Now, the intriguing yeah. thing about this is that you see this a lot, you know, where people say, oh, well, it was, you know, to keep people away. It really is. It's like a Scooby-Doo-style ploy. However, yeah. man, did that plan backfire? Because at one point in time, it was claimed that there were over 200 people in the area at once, cameras and shotguns in hand looking for flicks. So if someone was trying to drive people away from their illegal liquor catch, that was not the best plan they could have implemented. Yeah. Yeah, it's very – yeah, The what really struck me is sort of where I kind of like mused there uh, as you were telling the stories, the, the communication part, um, because I think there's only a couple of stories in the book where uh, – you know, these are all encounters, but only a couple of stories where there's like communication with these beings. So it's very interesting. It makes you – I don't know. It just makes you kind of wonder like – what what that's all about. I mean, I don't know. It's just a, it's sort of uh, mysterious in a way. Well, one of my favorite uh, things, too, is that... Oh, sorry, go on. No, good, 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 good. No, it's um, telepathy and psychic impressions. You know, so often this comes up cases. And the interesting thing is that it is, it's affiliated, you know, we tend to think of, like, psychic communication specifically with parapsychology and from there, like, hauntings. You know, that's pretty well accepted when people say that there's, you know, a ghost in their house and they have some form of communication with it or they'll see an apparition and they can hear the message even though it's not, you know, looking like it's speaking. So that's pretty well accepted. Um, Then you move into, like, you know, ufology and a lot of, you know, contacting abductee reports. People claim that there's some sort of communication that usually is not linguistic. It's usually simply just impressions or, again, that telepathic, strong communication. And then, yeah, here we have an encounter with, for all intents and purposes, a Sasquatch-like creature, which is exhibiting the same exact thing. So, and I just, that is fantastic. Again, I'm really, really intrigued in these things that kind of go across all of the different fields. Um, And this is one of them. Yeah. 
Uh, I had lost my train of thought there when I <laughs> but it's pulled I'm back sorry. out of station. Now what no 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 that's why I was kind of like uh that's why I was kind of like grasping at straws there for a moment. Um now one of the things that stood out to me reading the book, and this kind of connects to the Flick story, it connects to really a lot of these stories, um, is, and I, I get the feeling the answer is like no, but like well, I think it would be interesting. Maybe you could just kind of talk a little bit about this. Like the, has anyone tried to find these people now? Because like I'm thinking that about uh, Kathy Reeves, uh, in, in the story of Kathy Reeves. She's 10 years old, so it's like, okay, that was like, I think, like, maybe the late 60s, early 70s, so it's like, okay, Kathy Reeves very well, very well maybe alive today. I would love to know what some of these people might have to say now after all these years. I will admit to having done my Internet searches to try and pin these people down, um, and okay. I've actually had varying levels of success. I have not yet reached out. You know, that's the one thing where I'm like, hey – you remember in like, you know, yeah, 1964, 1967, when you said that you saw this, you know, giant ape-like creature. But um, that's the one thing that I have not yet done. Also tracking down the actual, like, details, emails, phone numbers. That is a whole other thing, too. But I know I would be absolutely intrigued, especially for, you know, Kathy Reeves is a great example of someone who this phenomenon really seems centered around her. Of course, that's the infamous walking tree stump case. Um, and... Yeah, I would love to be able to see if they remember, if they're willing to talk about it. Because um, so many of them, like, I mean, Simonton, probably my all-time favorite encounter, of course, the infamous alien pancakes. Um, he flat out said that if he had any other experiences, he was done. He wasn't going to try and, you know, tell anyone about them. Um, and I guess according to one researcher from a Detroit-based UFO research group um, who actually did visit Simonton years after his experience, he told him confidentially that he had had other sightings, but he wouldn't detail them. So I know I always wonder, too, like, would they be willing to talk? What do they remember? Would they just try and, you know, say, oh, well, you know, that didn't really happen or what? So, but yeah, that would be, that yeah. Would be intriguing. Yeah, yeah. I think um, a good place to start if you pursue this this line of, uh, I'm an idea man, so I'm not going to do anything. So I'll just, <laughs> I'll just float, float this your way. But I, I, I sent Greg Newkirk an article a few, a couple of years ago. I think one of the people from the Kellysville, uh, the Hopkinsville goblin story, uh, is she was, she was out there telling her story like, uh, about a year or two ago. So she's around. That might be a good place to start, but, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I'll 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 find that article, send it to you. Um nice. but yeah, it would be very very interesting to see yeah, what they remember, what they remember from just this whole I just, there's so much you can explore there, I think. Like like what first of all, like what was their experience like and then what was their experience after the experience like when they became yeah. you know, associated with these crazy with this with these stories, with these various monsters, you know, for the rest of their life in some cases to people they know. And what I'd love to know, too, is did they have any further experiences? You know, because so often, like, again, with my book, too, it's like you deal with the actual case. Um, and then from there, I've checked to see if there's other things reported after that and stuff like that. And very often it's just kind of like it drops off the face of the planet. And when you have such weird encounters, because so many people seem to have kind of repeat experiences or even their families start to sort of gather phenomena around them. You know, yeah. and I just have to wonder... What else happened? You know, did they just go on to have a totally normal life? Was it just that one bout of high strangeness and then nothing else? Did 
you know, if they moved away, did it follow them? Um, so that's something that I do think about as well. Yeah, yeah. It would be really uh, interesting. These are, these are certainly like, there's got to be a lot, of, uh, there's got to be a handful. I don't know, I don't know, you know. <laughs> there's got to be people from the book who are yeah. still around, you know. That that kind of, who knows if it's a lot or a few, but in, in a lot of the cases the people are kids or teenagers, so it's like they should still be around, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. definitely. Um, yeah, so one of the one of the other things uh you, you mentioned sort of uh I don't have it pegged to a specific case here um but you mentioned it early in the book and I thought it was interesting it, it's a point uh not very often brought up actually Ren Collier mentioned this back in when I saw him uh back when we were down in Asheville and it was like whoa I never even thought of that and then you mentioned the same thing in the book um I don't think a lot of people really um I don't think a lot of people really sort of take into account the fact that, like, if someone is something or an alien or whatever came here from another world, um, you know, setting aside the possibility that, oh, they, they figured it all out because they figured out how to get here, it's like they can't just go running around on the planet. Like, 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 yeah. like the, you have different gravity, there's different there's different atmosphere, and it's like they're not – you know, it's like I wouldn't want to go to Mars and like run around in like a like a jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't go to Mars and run around in a jumpsuit. So it's like, how are they even possible? How can they do this? So that raises the whole question where it's like, okay, what we're looking at here is some kind of fucking mirage of some kind. <laughs> well, you know, it's like in the Alien franchise, you leave the goddamn helmet on. <laughs> like, please, you know. When you're on some alien planet, which when you think of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, our planet is technically alien to whatever would be coming from elsewhere. And so I know the clothing of UFO occupants is something really interesting to me because, you know, every now and again, like the Flatwoods monsters really when it occurred to me how ironic it was because Flatwoods, you have this incredibly robotic looking entity. And as I was really researching that case, I was thinking to myself, well, this is exactly what we should be looking for, something that either is inorganic, it's some sort of drone or a robot or something, or is completely covered in a protective suit. But instead, yeah, you have, you know, again, the Simonton encounter, they were wearing two-piece turtleneck suits with little knit caps, and um, they had a track stripe down the pant leg. And many of these cases with supposed UFO occupants, supposed extraterrestrial biological entities, if we're looking at it from that um, pretty well-accepted conventional standpoint, they have absolutely no protective gear or breathing apparatus at all. And my problem with that is that you can argue a million times over that it's advanced technology that makes some sort of air bubble or whatever. Um, but to right, me, that's right. Yeah, that's kind of why. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting it's, at. Where there's like, there's always some. Yeah, go, but go on. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna see Oh go no, on. totally fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the same line of reasoning that you know, oh well, the good folk can do that because they are magical. Um, and that's that is simply my problem with uh, you know that particular argument. Not to say too, you know, I'll say a million times that I do think that there's a likelihood that there's more than one right answer for all these different manifestations. You know, I am a big fan of John Keel's theories, especially like the super spectrum idea, um, kind of the concept that a lot of these things may be temporary manifestations um, that are capable of kind of producing images to either suit or refute belief systems. Um, so that is kind of like, you know, my favorite theory for a lot of these. 
But that being said, I think that there's definitely, you know, room in this universe for the two of us. I think that there likely is a lot of different stuff going on. Um, but, yeah, no, the clothing thing is something of immense interest to me, too, because a lot of the times you get these kind of, like, folkloric motifs um, in the clothing of UFO occupants that have nothing to do with high technology whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And you mentioned this in the book, too, and I'm of the same opinion. I'm good friends with Josh Cutchin, so we, we've talked about Bigfoot before. He's, like, so into the supernatural Bigfoot that, uh, for oh, lack yeah. of a better term, he'll, he'll probably, like, be a <laughs> like, supernatural Bigfoot. But anyway, um, that, you know, he's sort of an ardent anti, anti-Bigfoot as an ape thing. Uh, I haven't talked to him recently, so I don't know how to gauge him on that. But anyway, the point being, it's like I'm of the opinion that it is probably both. And you kind of yeah. put that across in the book, too. To me, it, that makes the most sense, where it's like I've likened it to whatever this thing is can manifest into all different kinds of forms. And it, it presumably knows what Bigfoot is. So just as it can yeah. appear as a cat or a dog or, you know, it's like a Bigfoot is just a just another creature in this thing's in this thing's arsenal of of possible yeah. manifestations. Well, the big thing for me, too, um, specifically about Bigfoot, because, you know, I don't know if it was because Bigfoot was like, you know, the thing I researched first when I was a kid. I'm very nostalgic for the concept that there could indeed be simply some undiscovered animal um, to account yeah. for some Bigfoot sightings. You know, again, I think that a lot more than we'd expect our high strangeness, whatever <laughs> else that is, um, you know, the more spectral or supernatural, however you want to term that. Um, it seems like a lot of Bigfoot sightings fall into that category. But I do think that there is a likelihood that, you know, yeah, something like that, a physical creature corresponding to that description could also exist. You know, I think that that's completely likely. Now, the thing is, is that I think in the same way as like, okay, so there's the black shuck phenomenon, the phenomenon of hellhounds, devil dogs. Um, that's a really strong kind of thread of sightings. However, you would never try to say that large black dogs don't physically exist just based on sightings of spectral black dogs. And I kind of feel the same way about Bigfoot, you know, just in, because we have this spectral alternative um, that may account for a lot of sightings. It doesn't mean that a physical one couldn't exist either. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I have that same sort of nostalgia. I kind of like daydream of a of a day when I can I hope people don't get, get offended. Well, I can go to a zoo and see a Bigfoot, you know. They have, yeah. <laughs> if they capture one, they'll have to protect it. So, you know, yeah. I'll be able to I, – yeah, I want to be able to, like, walk up to the thing and be like, that's Bigfoot. I can see – I can see Bigfoot, you know. Uh, so to me, if it's like some kind of ghost thing or whatever, it's like, well, that's never <laughs> – that's never going to happen. But if they can capture a real Bigfoot, uh, yeah, I have this sort of daydream vision of, like, that would be – you know, like the giant panda, how they bring it around to different countries and stuff. Yeah. Be like, there's there's Bigfoot, you know? If if they said, Have like, like a in the, the same... reserve somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. If the St. Louis Zoo was like, we've got Bigfoot, and you can... I would I would be on, like, the first plane <laughs> to St. Louis. I'd be like, I got to see this fucking Bigfoot. Holy shit, they caught it finally, you know? So... Oh, yeah. I hope... I but hope I'm... that it's... I hope that it is catchable. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, like I said, when I was a kid, that was like my life's goal. I was like, I am going to figure, I'm going to find Bigfoot. That was that was my thing. And then, you know, the years went by, and I started becoming interested also in spectrology and ufology. And then I found Keel, and I was like, okay, regroup. 
you might not find big fish. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, it's a Bigfoot. Yeah, that's how I got really into it too. Before I got into UFOs, as Bigfoot as a kid, and yeah, it's sort of like the. Uh, it must have. I, well, yeah. Lawrence says Lawrence, Lawrence Coleman always talks about how little kids like love cryptozoology and stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's how that's how I got into all this too with uh, Bigfoot. Um. So all right, let me see what we got in the notes here. Uh, well, I do. All right, let me see. Well, let's jump into actually. We'll go to the next case here. I, we only have three cases, so I won't. I won't make you work too hard on this. But I loved <laughs> this story. This was like I think this was my favorite one in the whole book. Honestly, um, this is the oh, Three wow. Ring Circus of Cisco Grove. Um, oh yeah, just absolutely, absolutely amazing, amazing story. So uh, yeah, if you don't mind, will you tell us the story? Of course. So. This encounter centers around a man by the name of Donald Shrum. Um, It was September of 1964. He and two friends had decided to do some bow hunting at Cisco Grove in Placer County, California. Um, So, unfortunately, throughout the evening, Shrum became separated from his two friends. And, unfortunately, they they made it back to camp, but he did not. Now, interestingly enough, one of his buddies actually claimed that on the way back to camp, he did see what he thought was a strange, slow-moving meteor streaking through the sky. Um, However, of course, this was not the strangest part of the evening. Otherwise, we would not be talking about it here. So while his two friends returned to camp, Shrum unfortunately realized that he was totally lost and decided that it was too late to getting too dark to try and make his way back to camp. So he was a capable outdoorsman. He figured he'd be fine for the night. And he decided that he was actually going to climb this tree near a granite outcropping, um, trying to keep away from bears which I guess, you know, it must have been rickety enough that a bear couldn't have climbed it. I'm not sure. I always thought that bears would get you if you were in a tree, but whatever. He decided to climb the tree to stay out of a bear's reach. So shortly after he perched in the tree, he saw this white light kind of moving below the horizon. And he figured that it was at first a flashlight or lantern, but then he saw it go way up and he figured, oh, hey, maybe it's a helicopter. They must have, you know, contacted the rescue service to come looking for me. So... Shrum immediately jumped out of the tree and lit three signal fires and started waving his arms, trying to flag down the rescuers, before he realized that, unfortunately, this helicopter was totally soundless and headed straight for him. So after that realization, he actually decided, and this is a kind of intriguing aspect of this case, because so often, you know, you'll see, um, like Flatwoods is another great example. They saw the eyes, and immediately they're like, oh, it's a raccoon. Usually you see people go through every single option and then finally settle on, okay, we saw an anomaly. Shrum kind of yeah. somberly decided, this is a flying saucer. <laughs> now, of course, this was after realizing that it couldn't be a helicopter. It was totally sound. So he did kind of go through, you know, go down the line of normal conclusions and finally settle on, okay, this is a flying saucer. So he decided that it would be wise enough to head back for the safety of the tree and just sit perfectly still. Now, the object itself, the light, hovered over a nearby canyon, and it gave him a really clear view of what he called the mothership. He claimed that it was this huge craft that was about 150 feet long with kind of a roughly oval-type shape and three flat, illuminated rectangular panels, which were arranged in formation on the side of it. So about five minutes after it settled over the canyon, he said that something was expelled from the center panel, and he saw this dome. <laughs> I love the terminology, too, so you'll forgive me for, like, quoting exactly. But, again, oh, yeah. we go through these encounters, especially these retro ones. The way that people describe these things is so much fun. 
So Shrum claimed that it was a dome-like affair. And he said that if it was a flying saucer, it must have been just a little dinky one, <laughs> which <laughs> appeared to come towards him. So he actually, the dome-like affair, the little dinky flying saucer, settled somewhere in the brush. And then suddenly he heard this crashing-type noise coming towards him. So again, he's still up in the tree. He has the three signal fires kind of burning down on the ground. And then he starts hearing this crashing headed straight for him. A short time after the noise started up, a little figure approaches the area. He claimed that it stood a little over five feet tall and it was wearing this kind of one-piece silver uniform with puffs at the joints. Um, and again, this is just a really kind of classic example of a lot of these mid-century contact reports, um, this one-piece uniform. He said that he couldn't tell if it was really wearing headgear, but the face seemed flat and dark, um, and that it had these large, dark eyes, which he compared to welding goggles. So as soon as this creature came into view, um, apparently its attention was attracted by a manzanita bush. Um, this makes an appearance throughout the evening as a whole posse of little humanoids and also some beings that Shrum referred to as robots approached the area. Um, they seemed to be fooling around with his manzanita plant through the night. So really, really a weird case. Um, but of course, this thing wasn't alone. It actually was joined by another one that looked identical to it. So that was when Shrum panicked. He just immediately claimed that all he could think of at that point was how he was going to survive the situation if he'd see his family again. You know, it just absolutely terrified him. So he tried to just remain as still as possible and stay out of, you know, their attention, just let them do what they were going to do when, unfortunately, they noticed him. So the two little humanoids kind of came to the base of the tree and just looked up at him. And then it was shortly after this time that they were joined by the being which he referred to as the robot. Now, this one was around the same size, but it appeared to be totally robotic. Um, he even claimed that it had, like, jointed fingers and a kind of hinged jaw mechanism and fiery red-orange eyes. So, interestingly enough, as the robot approached the two humanoids at the base of Shrum's tree, it brushed away the dying embers from the middle signal fire. So, and this will kind of come up later in the story when Shrum is trying to defend against these super bizarre beings. So his night was seriously, honestly, just dreadful. Um, as far as contact goes, as far as the cases in this book go, you know, this is one of, I would say, the most terrifying because as soon as the robot reached the tree, it actually reached up to its mouth and there was this cloud of white vapor, which immediately made Shrum black out. Um, when he came to, he even felt nauseous and started dry heaving. And he came to the conclusion in his mind that these beings were trying to knock him out of the tree and take him with them. Um, so that was when he decided to shoot at the entities with his bow and arrow. Now, this is intriguing, too, because he claimed that throughout the whole course of events, he believed that the initial two entities and the others like them, um, there were several others kind of in the area but not joining the trio at the base of the tree. He claimed that they seemed to be biological, um, whereas, again, the robot seemed, you know, for all intents and purposes, like a robot. Um, so he made the decision then and there that he didn't want to shoot the biological entities as they weren't causing him any trouble. He wanted to shoot at the robot and try and scare it off. Um, he did so and claimed that the arrow just kind of made this bright flash on contact, and the robot was driven back two feet, but soon enough it just came back to the base of the tree. Now, again, through the night he was really trying to defend against these things, which appeared to really have an interest in getting him out of the tree. Um, so he recalled kind of how the robot had brushed away the embers of the signal fire. And this is one of the most interesting aspects of this case to me. 
um, he realized that it appeared as though they didn't like or were afraid of the fire. So he took the book of matches that he had and tossed it down on the ground. The amazing thing is that not only did the biological entities and the robot kind of jump back, the mothership did as well. Um, and again, this is one of those really, really strange little aspects of this case, because if we're thinking about this in terms of, you know, an actual craft, an actual, like, you know, some sort of physical craft hovering over the canyon that traversed how much, you know, space to get here, and it's carrying these entities, and one is robotic, one is, you know, one of the types is biological. Okay, we can see possibly how the entities on the ground would react to fire and jump back. As to why the mothership also jumped back, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, it seems as though, you know, the entities and the mothership were all tied. You know, they were all part of the same kind of whatever the core of this is. They were all reacting, even though the masks were different. So Shrum then, throughout the entire night, burned pretty much everything that he had, um, right down to his hat and his overcoat, um, even all the money that he had in his pockets to try and get these things away from him. By the end of the night, actually, he was left wearing only jeans, a T-shirt, his shoes, and a belt. Um, he even suffered some hypothermia from this event by the end of it, which, again, there's a lot of after effects in this particular case as well. So finally, when he was out of things to light on fire, he actually climbed further up the tree and lashed himself to the trunk with his belt. Um, at this point, too, again, the whole night, not only is he tossing down these things that he's lighting on fire and he's trying to just hang onto the tree, the robot keeps emitting this mist, causing him to black out for a few moments and come to. Um, truly just a terrifying experience. Now, at the end of like the night, he actually tried to shake um, the tree to get these things to leave because the two humanoids were trying to climb the tree. They were unable to, which is just the weirdest flopped abduction I have ever seen. I mean, if you think of this <laughs> in terms of, again, of the alien abduction scenario, typically the concept is if they want someone, they get them and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, in this case, the two humanoids were trying in this ridiculous manner to climb the tree. I mean, they've got a robot that can emit a mist that causes the guy to black out, but instead they're like, no, we're going we're gonna to get him this way. Um, of course, that didn't work. So at that point in the night, Shrum was even shaking the tree, trying to knock them out of it, which that would happen. Then the robot would emit the mist. He would come to, the beings would be climbing the tree again. I mean, this was just going on and on and on. So after this, Again, there's kind of like separate waves of his defense against these beings. And bear in mind, too, all the while the mothership is still hovering in the canyon. And in the area, there are other of these entities kind of just messing around with the underbrush. So it's not simply the things at the foot of the tree. There's this whole kind of setting um, just of such high strangeness in the area. So finally, the last defense that Shrum had, um, he had a canteen, which he tossed down and they had no interest in. And then he had all the loose change that he had in his pockets. So he tossed down the coins. Now, the interesting thing is that they actually took those at the end of the night. Um, when he came to in the morning, after being completely put out by the strange mist by these robots, um, and he finally came to and the whole scene was cleared, the canteen was still there, the remains of his burned items were still there, but for some crazy reason they had taken the change. Um, so, And again, this is a case that has massive after effects. Not only did he have the physical effects um, of his night up in the tree, such as a bruised chest from when he was rocking the tree against him, he also had you know, what we would call PTSD from his event. Um, he claimed that actually through the duration of his encounter, too, he was hearing this like kind of hooting-type noise, which he thought may have been an owl, but it seemed as though the entities reacted to it. Um, again, really, really strange detail. And so whenever he would hear an owl hoot, he would be taken right back to that night. He even had nightmares from the event. 
um, lots of after effects here. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Um, I absolutely love it. It's what what strikes me about it. First of all, is easily it's sort of the longest encounter in the book. Like the level of detail and how long this guy experienced this is is remarkable. That's my first. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That kind of just blows my night. mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and, you know, too. Oh, go on. Sorry. You no, know, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, if you think of this too, because obviously, when someone comes with such a truthfully crazy story as this. I mean, he is saying that throughout an entire night, he spent a night lashed up in a tree because he was being attacked by beings from a mothership. Um, yeah. Of course, people are going to say, oh, well, he's making it up. The amount of dedication, not only did he burn, like, most of what he was wearing and his money, I mean, he did. He spent an entire night up in a tree in the cold just for a supposed hoax. I mean, that is that is some dedication right there. Um even the interesting thing too is that actually the case was signed off with the exact same conclusion as the Simonton encounter is psychological. You know, however, here's the thing is that interestingly enough, you do have that one detail of his friend seeing the slow moving meteor. Um so you have kind of confirmation that something interesting was in the air. You also have the fact that again, are we meant to believe that he enacted out this entire thing just because he was hallucinating little spacemen? Um you know, it just, that seems like a lot to ask, especially in someone who, for all intents and purposes, had never before or since had something like that happen, had some sort of waking dream or hallucination, um, and did leave the trace evidence. I mean, the arrows were still in the area. Um, he didn't have his money on them. He had burnt all the stuff. So you have that trace evidence that he left. Um, you have also the other the sighting of the slow-moving meteor, quote-unquote. So, yeah, really, really bizarre. Yeah, yeah, and the level of detail to it is just really remarkable. This is the kind of person uh, I don't even, like, like we were talking earlier about, and this guy sounded like this really messed him up for, like, the rest of his life, and I understand. Yeah. I, mean, I don't mean that's an awkward. <laughs> I feel terrible. <laughs> um, but he's the kind of person, like, I would love to talk to this dude and fi- and be like, dude, yeah. tell this Tell this story. I'm sure you would too. If, if we could find this guy, I'd be like, okay, man, let's <laughs> let's sit down and let's sit down and revisit that night in the woods, bro. Because I gotta fucking Remember, hear all. Yeah. 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 Remember the terrifying like, get... night of your life. <laughs> yeah, he'd like I mean, get away from me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I believe um, he has passed, unfortunately, but I, I know. Oh. And, and that's the thing too is very like so often these encounters. Yeah, it's awful because. They are terrifying. You know, I mean, again, I'm interested yeah. in this stuff. I don't know how I would personally feel in that situation. Reading through it, I don't have a lot of fear towards it. I have, like, more interest. Um, but, no, like, it is a terrifying thing to think that you are being pretty much held captive up in a tree by things that you can't understand and you can't deal with. And then you have the absolute ludicrous concept of these two little things doing some sort of Laurel and Hardy routine, trying to climb the tree and tumbling down. You know, it has these kind of ridiculous, um, almost funny aspects to it, which I feel like kind of just compounds how bewildering and frightening that actually is. Yeah, there's a delightful absurdity to it. Um, you mentioned yeah. this in a couple of points in the book, that the, and you mentioned it just now when you were telling the story. It's like there are multiple occasions where these, uh, what one <laughs> presumes uh, are like, 
uh, advanced beings, whether they're from outer space or uh, another dimension or whatever, uh, you know, magical. But it's like, but they generally, well, in certain instances, they they're incompetent. They they're like, yeah. they cannot even they can't function uh, in our world. And it's like, this is really. Like it just made it's one of those, another one of those head scratchers. Like, like I said, you pointed out in the book. It's like, what is that? You know, what I mean, pontificate about that a little bit. What do you think that's all about? For me, you know, I do think that a lot of these cases um, are kind of almost should be looked at almost as like performances in a way, um, because it seems a concept too that forever intrigues me is the fact that a lot of them seem to happen just so coincidentally or synchronistically right around the witness. Um, there was even a, a Sasquatch case I was just looking into that's not in the book, um, where this thing disappeared. This guy had a sighting. The, the Sasquatch disappeared in a certain patch of woods. He came back two nights later. It managed to show up right exactly where it had vanished. Um, of course, then, too, there's another case in here with a really bizarre faceless thing, the Winterfold Wonder, um, where it just there's these like kind of faulty transitions that just shows up at a particular stretch of road where someone happened to pull over. Um, so to me, it seems as though these events are intrinsically linked to our experience of them. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if the tree falls in the forest and, you know, no one's there to hear it, would it make a sound? Personally, I think yeah. that if we weren't around to witness these things, they wouldn't be happening. Um, and I think that the absurdity, the ridiculousness of all of these encounters, I think that's part of it. Um, as to what specifically it means you know i'm not necessarily sure it's kind of a vague thing to just bring up how there does seem to be an almost trickster-esque aspect to it um and i don't know in a sense if maybe the fact that a lot of them have these kind of funny ludicrous bizarre behaviors is sort of just you know part of that kind of confusion force that you have yeah. in a lot of these um that's that's the best i've come up with um i think that yeah, too yeah. you know in a way I do feel like whatever this phenomenon is, you know, kind of the con the overarching, you know, concept that like healer valet talks about, um, it does seem to sort of have an interplay with belief systems. And, you know, Keel specifically talks about how in many cases it seems to try and want to confirm certain beliefs. Um, of course, one of my favorite examples of that, he said that he was getting so tired of having this happen where he would talk to someone about an idea you know, possibly about some theory regarding the phenomenon. And then several days later, he'd get a report that confirmed it. And so he was just getting really fed up with it because he was like, how can I figure out what the truth is here? You know, if it seems as though it's going out of its way to say, oh, yeah, well, you were right with that one. And so he was just kind of toying with this really ridiculous idea that possibly the men in black might be aquatic-based. He hadn't mentioned it to anyone. He hadn't written it down. He had literally just thought about it. And then later that week, he received a report where someone claimed that they had come across a man in black type figure who pulled down its turtleneck to reveal gills. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of concept here about the confirmation of belief structures. However, I think that, too, in that there's also an element that seeks to refute them. And again, especially if we're looking at this particular case, if we're looking at it from the concept of extraterrestrial, you know, biological entities from some super advanced um, planet with super advanced technology, and then you have them, you know, failing to abduct one measly human. I mean, they've got the mothership right there. They've got the right, robots right. with the knockout gas. And they can't even nab this guy. And the mothership itself is jumping back when a fire, like, what, 100 yards away is lit. You know, I think that this is almost a dead giveaway that the phenomena is kind of saying, hey, this isn't what we're talking about here. 
Um, so, yeah, as to what it all means, I mean, that is a big question. Yeah, yeah, that's why we're in this, right? So that's like yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, some of these questions. Yeah, like I didn't mean to say you have something profound. Like, like why are they? Why are the aliens and <laughs> like we don't know? It's like sort of uh, yeah. you know, if I throw it out there, it's like, I just want your opinion on it. You know, we, these are the questions <laughs> no. that that uh that keep us going. Now, um, oh, well, well, it is possible too. I was kind of thinking. Well, there's two things here. One, like the one thing that kind of got in my craw in the story was like, okay, dude, how? Are you getting knocked out and you're still in the tree? Like how? I, I yeah. didn't. <laughs> that's one thing I would. If we could sit down with him when I cross the pearly gates, I'll be looking for this dude, and I'm going to be like, "Where's that guy that had the thing?" And you know, and they'll they'll point me over to him, and I'll be like, "How do you not fall out of the tree?" So that part <laughs> that confused me. Yeah, me too. And all I can think is that possibly it must have just lasted like a moment you know, or something like that. But I know that actually bothered me too, because in first reading the case, you know, there's the point where he lashes the belt to himself. And that's when I realized, I was like, say, how was he still up there up until that point? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But I I know. (laughs) And the other part (laughs) is, if I, I, I'm in total agreement with you, what you're saying here about the phenomenon, I've likened it to like a dance. On the show, it's like yeah. a dance between well, the witness and the phenomenon, whatever it is. And I wonder sometimes if, in like in this instance, if like maybe the incompetence was this was the, was actually like the phenomenon's way of trying to calm this dude down. Where it was ah, like, look, yeah. we're, we can't get you, dude. We can't get you. Chill, chill out. Chill out. We, yeah. We're not, you know. Uh, so, but, but, but it never kind of dawned on him in the moment, which I can understand because they're little beings and shit. Yeah, that that does make sense. I know I've wondered about that too because, you know, too this just seems a total odds with you know what follows that. I mean, 1964 is a little bit early on for like the really strong alien abduction motif that we you know end up having as kind of a constant part of the belief system now. Um, but still, you know, it seems odd to me because that does seem to be such a strong thread that they just are capable of whatever that. You know, in this case, they were taking, first of all, to such a physical attempt I mean, as climbing the tree, um, even in conjunction with knockout gas. Um, yeah, it, again, too, it seems like so often you have these encounters. The encounter and what happens almost, it's kind of just what seems to happen. And so in this one, too, you know, it seems as though they were trying to get him. It seems as though they were looking at the man's knee bush. And, you know, of course, when this was first investigated, it was investigated in a very ufological way. Um, it was even propounded that the reason they took his coins is so that they could take them back to, you know, the mothership or their planet and look at the dates and, you know, figure out, I don't know what about our society. Um, but again, you know, I think that that whole thing is kind of some sort of charade um, just to make it seem as though something is happening. And the question is, what is actually happening? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a fantastic case. It really is. It's uh, it's it's really an amazing. <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat as I was reading it, and I'm like, what, what is what? Like, this is insane. Um, another point that comes up in this story that you make throughout the book that I thought was really interesting. You make a lot of sort of observations that kind of uh, sort of like I oh I never thought of that kind of thing. So it, I really well, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about the book. So you make a lot of these observations where I'm like, oh shit, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Um, Thank you. And you, 
you mentioned that the that so often these entities, these beings, um, are especially like in the literature and sort of the reporting back in the day, um, and just sort of maybe among people and stuff, is that they're from space, they're aliens or whatever. And even if they, in, in a lot of the cases you point out in the book, um, you know, the craft shows up, the alien shows up from like way the fuck out of the out of the bushes. And it's like, well, yeah. how do you know? This, you have no, you like, you just think the alien came from the UFO because they were here at the same time, but... The the alien you never even saw it go anywhere near the the UFO. Yes, yes, and that is that's the point that you know. Again, as I've gone through this, I've started picking up on that because um, I know Winston, Connecticut, is another case in the book where it's like it was just oh yeah, those are UFO occupants. They actually came out of a barn, like or a shed. You know, it's almost like a monster in the closet just because there's something in the sky. You know, why do we assume that they are UFO occupants? Um, and I mean, too, just the fact of it being a UFO, we're literally defining it as unidentified. So to say that it is, it is a craft, you know, I mean, that's kind of a leap. Um, but no, it's really amazing, too, especially going through, again, a lot of like the older UFO mags and stuff like that, is you'll just have weird entities that people see, you know, and that can be like in their home, it can be when they're on the road, and immediately they're kind of referred to as UFO occupants, um, sometimes even if there's no UFO sightings in the area. And so it's really intriguing, as you see, too, this belief system just kind of gathering gathering weird creatures and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I know. I've, I've found that endlessly entertaining. Yeah, well, it's interesting in just the time I've been around, uh, which is a while now, It's uh, it seems there's a certain, like, delineation now where you get – Cryptozoology is kind of broken off, and there's, there's just sort of like this general milieu of monsters. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've noticed sort of this change in in perception now, where it's like Mothman used to be kind of like in the cryptozoology thing, and now he's now Mothman's kind of <laughs> what an analogy. Mothman is like the Bigfoot of the monsters, and Bigfoot's yeah. the Bigfoot of 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 the cryptids. Yeah, yeah that's kind that's of actually really good. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I've noticed that split too, especially, yeah, Mothman is kind of like, I always imagine it's kind of like the band leader or something, you know, like of all of the, all the weird ones, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's the Bigfoot of the monsters. Um, yep. There's a natural rivalry there. That would be a movie, Bigfoot versus the Mothman. You could expand that to like a whole universe. <laughs> a whole universe. You've got all the cryptids versus the monsters. Um, oh, that'd be great. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? One of the things you mentioned in the book, this ties to Mothman. I'll I'll do my uh Aaron Gullius, if he's listening, will appreciate this. I'll do my spiel about the Mothman. But you say uh in at one point in the book and I I should have connected it to the case, but I just have page 59. So it says, uh, we say, occurrences become legends, become catch-alls. And I thought that was a really great observation. Um, and immediately what sprung to mind to me is like one of my big pet peeves. is like this is the new Mothman. How there's like a Lake Michigan oh. Mothman now. It's like, no, no, you cannot yeah. call him the fucking Mothman. That's not the Mothman. We go back to the Mothman as the Bigfoot of Monsters. It's like, no, you can't. I don't care if he, you know, I don't care if it looks like a Mothman. Like this, Mothman's taken. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't change him, move him around. So, 
Uh, it's kind of my yeah. my thing. But it is interesting that, as I think as you mentioned, it sort of uh, there are cases where like something will happen, like a Bigfoot sighting, and then something weirder will happen, but they'll lump it in with with that in a way. So it's an interesting yes. how it happens like that. That that happens a lot. And yeah, I know. One of my favorite examples of this is actually um, the Marlington encounter, which, I, again, you'll have to forgive me for saying this is one of my favorite cases, but it is. Um, so this one in particular was a sighting of this Bigfoot-like creature, and it was by a gentleman by the name of Doc Priestley near Marlington, West Virginia. And when he saw it, and I love this so much, his car fried out. Not once, but twice. And apparently the second time it fried so bad that he actually couldn't drive it anymore. But the intriguing thing is that he saw this Bigfoot-like creature. Um, There were other sightings of a Bigfoot-like creature in the area around the time. And if you go back to the old newspaper articles, they lop it in with the Braxton County or Flatwoods monster. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, it's like they say, oh, well, there's this thing. Never mind that this was some, you know, giant robotic-like thing tied to UFOs. But now there's a new one around, and it looks like Bigfoot. Um, and the flip side usually happens as well. I mean, you have also the Wetzel encounter, which was of this bizarre, you know, you could almost call it like a lizard man, even though the witness was very particular that it looked like it had almost scales that looked like leaves, not like fish scales, which is a really interesting little um, aspect of that there, which is kind of just locked in with Bigfoot research. Because um, Bigfoot does tend to collect, you know, a lot of, okay, if it was oh, yeah. bipedal, now it's a Bigfoot. Regardless if it was, you know, had hair or scales or whatever, it's a Bigfoot now. But, you know, the, the Marlinton encounter falling into the Braxton County monster, was that was an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I, well, we both, uh, we both know Linda Godfrey, so hats off to her and kudos to her. When I rant about the Mothman thing, I always point out that, like, Linda Godfrey came up with this the dog man thing. She didn't. She didn't. You know. She she didn't try and tag it tag it to some kind of other thing. It's like come up with your own thing. Yeah. If it's a if it's a Michigan Mothman, it can't be a Michigan Mothman. It's, <laughs> there's only one Mothman. Yeah. Um, but I feel like yeah, Mothman's just so intrinsically tied to you know the events of '66 and '67. Yes. You know, it's like you kind of can't remove that from the place and time. You know, in my opinion. Yeah. It's crazy. It drives me nuts as a. You know, it's like the it's like how they call the chupacabra like when they find a dog with mange. It's like, come on, can we not yeah. with this? Yeah, or the Jersey dog. Uh, that's another great. And I think Lauren Coleman talked about that in Mysterious America. How anything in the Pine Barrens is the Jersey Devil, regardless of yes. you know the classic early 1900s you know probable hoax one or Bigfoot. I mean, you even saw that in X Files. You know, they had that episode where it was almost more like a wild man, um, and that was the Jersey Devil. Um, haunting stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, now look at I, I, this guy. He called in. I try to discourage callers, but it's going to be like I have OCD. So if I see this on hold, he's been on hold for like forty-five minutes. He even asked on Twitter really? if I was going to let him on the show. So I know he's a. I, I'm, I'm a. I'm a sinister man. So Glenn uh, Denon, right in Cincinnati. Sorry about those Bengals, bro. Yes. That's correct. Hey, no problem. You and I, by the way, go a long way back. I used to post to your forum as Glenn Denon 20 years ago. And in fact, yeah, I, I won the WWE thing twice, picking the winners. Um, also, I run the Cincinnati Bigfoot Research Group, so this is timely for me because I was reminiscing. I love Zelia's work. Absolutely looking forward to the book. And I have a, a simple question for you. 
you don't seem to follow the normal arc of people who get into this line where they'll do like Roswell, Kecksburg, et cetera, et cetera. All of your picks seem more eclectic on your YouTube channel. And I was wondering what the creative process is. How do you find a gem every time? Again, absolutely love your work. Just interested in your creative process and how you pick. Thank you. Wow. Excellent. That's an excellent question. You, that, that was the perfect caller I could possibly ask for. So, Clendenin, hats off to you. That was excellent. He had that all put. I guess I should just keep them on hold for <laughs> until, they, until they're ready to, to ready to burst out the gate. So, uh, well, you heard his question. It's a it's a great question. It's one I kind of you know I have like get into the YouTube stuff in my notes. So definitely, uh, you know how 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 do you come up with these cases? Well, first of all, thank you so much um, for the compliments. That's just super nice to hear. And, you know, really, I just kind of keep an eye out. I mean, I do a lot of reading on all this material. Um, And as I go through, it's like there are just so many interesting cases. And for me, I really gravitate, of course, towards, you know, the high strangeness and the stuff that kind of has cross-field or cross-genre sort of aspects to it. Um, So pretty much I just... I look through a lot of books, um, also especially like the old UFO magazines. Absolutely love those. I've got a bunch of those um, from different people in the field who have been great, gracious enough to share that with me. Also, you can find a ton of them online. Um, so really just going through and keeping an eye out for anything that really stands out. And, yeah, I try and, you know, once I kind of circle in on a case and I'm like, okay, this seems really interesting. From that point on, it's trying to find everything I can about it. Um, and so especially every single reference I can find. Just because with so many of these cases, especially the ones from the era which I really like to research, of course, which is like, you know, the 60s and 70s, a lot of the times it'll kind of have gone through the telephone game a few times. And so you'll see these different, you know, articles or different, you know, handlings of the case which have slightly different details. And so for me it's like I, I get a little bit, you know, paranoid about my references and so I try and gather as many as I possibly can especially any that were like you know being produced at the time especially like newspaper articles and stuff like that um, just to kind of figure out okay what really did happen and so from there once I have you know what seems to be the narrative of what actually occurred you know then it's a matter of just kind of laying that out and picking it apart and dissecting it and looking at all the details so yeah as far as how I find the cases it really is just kind of probably a little bit of an obsession with just going through the material. Yeah. Well, that's a good dovetail into what we were – I set you up before the show started. I told you I was going to ask you about this. So uh, what I thought was interesting in the book as I was going along, um, I think the cases are presented chronologically. Um, yep. And, okay, yeah. So that was good because I was, I was like halfway through the book. I'm like – this I came up with this thing where it's like, okay, why these are all cases just from this era, and I'm like, I'm gonna have to go back and figure out what. <laughs> but then I was like, oh wait, shit, it's chronological. This is I don't. This saves me a lot of uh, a lot of going back and looking. So, um, but what I thought was interesting is the the cases you know from the 60s and 70s. I think the latest case is 78, which is like over 40 years ago now. Um, and I'm sure there was stuff in the 80s and 90s, but. It just seems like, you know, the way the cases came to us is a bygone era almost. And it's like how mm-hmm. nowadays on the Internet there's cases every day and this random crazy stuff like 
this stuff, you know, people just go out and make, you know, say stories, you know, and make them up or, or claim, you know, report them to places and whether it's true or not, who the fuck knows and, you know, you're just reading it online, you can't find the person and there's, a million, there's millions of them all the time. So it's a very uh, different world. So, um, you know, I don't really, I, I'm sort of observing, what do you think of that? Have you encountered that and, and sort of how this there's the bygone era where you can find all these stories, and nowadays it's like, who knows what's a good story and what isn't? Oh, definitely. I mean, even in, you know, the relatively short time that I, I mean, relatively, I've been spending the better part of my life, you know, in this field and interested in it. Um, But if you look at, you know, even just from when I was eight years old to now, the Internet is a very different place. You know, I remember when I first got really interested in cryptozoology, I could put in a few keywords on Google and you know, turn up some really good information. Um, and now there's just simply so much information. And especially, too, you know, there there is the frustration of when you're looking for a particular case and you put the keyword and you have the date and everything, and, you know, you have the witness names and this, that, and the other, and the first thing to come up is, like, you know, some random, like, T-shirt or something. Like, <laughs> there's just, there's so much information to sift through. So I've noticed that even in my time, um, strictly speaking about the Internet, and, yeah, there is definitely, you know, for me, too, like, that focus kind of on the 60s and 70s, part of that is personal. I really love that era just in general. Um, like, this probably sounds silly, but even, like, aesthetic and style-wise, you know, I sometimes feel like I was born in the wrong era, but that's a whole another right. topic. Um, <laughs> and then, too, especially, you know, it does seem like it was really kind of a golden age of, you know, anomalies research. And so going through, you know, the different magazines and things like that, and there's so many collections of those online now. It's just, it's so fun for me to look at all of these truly insane, bizarre reports coming in from people. Um, yeah, so that's that's definitely kind of part of that focus there. You know, and people have asked me too, they're like, does it seem like stuff has gotten less weird? And I wouldn't say that stuff has gotten less weird. I mean, you know, I've received, you know, personal reports from people. I think that's kind of, you know, the interesting thing is that it seems like there's a lot of talk, you know, and a lot of information um, kind of about things that fall into certain categories now. Um, they seem to be really well-defined. Um, but I have received, I'm not really, like, able to talk super freely about them, but I have received really bizarre accounts, you know, personally, like, through my website and stuff like that. So the weirdness is still around. I just feel like with all the information out there and how the cases are reported and handled, it's a little bit harder to get to. Um because, yeah, you know, it does seem like, you know, people really do. They ask, like, was it just the 70s being the 70s? Was it like the 60s? Why is it so weird? Um, but I think it really is just, it's harder to get at that now simply with all the information, um, which it is, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. You can make connections with people that you probably wouldn't have heard from in the past. Um, and, of course, that's fantastic. But, yeah, just the sheer volume of it is, it's a lot. Yeah, and what I, I think maybe, too, um is that you don't necessarily uh, – it's, it's, the Internet's become more of like a clearinghouse. And it's like yeah. with the old days, something would happen. Somebody would see something. Somebody would count something. And someone would would sort of dive on that and dig into it, mm-hmm. whether it was like a local newspaper reporter or someone who was in the field and, and sort of was close enough to get into it. Um, you know, I think that that's a big difference in the in what we're seeing today. Um, yeah. And also, like back then, like I said, like it, it would get more local coverage. 
because uh, I troll around for stories every, all day, every day for Coast to Coast. So mm-hmm. it's like I, I don't see any, you know, you don't really hear a story like someone saw a Bigfoot and then it kind of caused the kind of excitement uh, yeah. that that we see in in the stories in your book. That community response is definitely that is a huge shift that has occurred from again like the golden age to now. It's just it's it's a lot less pronounced, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Like somebody says, oh, I saw a Bigfoot. Like back then, as we were talking about earlier, they'd round up a posse and be like, let's get yep. <laughs> let's get that Bigfoot. And it's like I never hear of them. They don't round up posses at all anymore. We need more we need more Bigfoot posses. No wonder we can't catch it. This is a posseless era. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Now another detail, like I was saying before you mentioned stuff. You do a uh, I almost well, I'll bring it up. I, I almost feel like this is like a spoiler, but not really because it's just maybe it's just a spoiler to me and it dawned on me and you, uh, you mentioned this in the book and I'm like, "What?" So, yeah. Uh this the preponderance of faceless creatures which oh, I think yeah. is really weird. And and you mentioned it, well, there's a story where, like, this faceless creature is, like, peering into a window of a car. And, like, I'm le- reading the story and going along, and, like, it didn't even dawn on me until you mentioned it after telling the story, where it's like, why, if this thing had no face, why was it peering into the car? Like, that doesn't make any yeah. sense at all. It's like, what? So, you know, when I say I love the book, I really, <laughs> I enjoy <laughs> any book that I can go, what? Uh, is Is... <laughs> Is top notch. So talk about this preponderance of faceless, faceless beings because it's one again another one of those things you mentioned. It's like oh shit, she's right. There are a lot of faceless beings. What's that all about? Yeah, that's something that occurred. And I think the case that you're referencing is uh, the Specter of Winterfold, which was a really really bizarre case um, from the area of Winterfold in Surrey. And yeah, it involved a motorist, actually two motorists. Um, who had just this, they stopped the car to kind of wipe the windshield off. And, yeah, this really bizarre, I mean, even by my standards, bizarre entity just came (laughs) up to the window and started looking in, even though, like you mentioned, it had no face. And facelessness is definitely something of interest to me because, again, it's one of those aspects that comes up whether you're looking at UFO entities, whether you're looking at ghosts, I mean, very popular with ghosts. We think of all the faceless monks and nuns, um, even the banshee, which is kind of between ghost and fairy face um, is usually seen wearing a veil um, and then of course even some cryptids such as Momo the Missouri monster which was described as having hair so long it covered the face completely um, New Jersey had the Morristown monster which just was described as this scaly thing that also had long hair which lacked a face um, and of course yeah with the UFO related entities people say oh well it was covered with a helmet or you know it just didn't have a face things like that and so again that's just one of those details that stands out to me because here we have this one really bizarre aspect popping up, whether we're looking at a haunted house, we're looking at a sighting from a UFO, or we're looking at some sort of cryptid. And the intriguing thing to me is that, you know, it really seems, uh, actually this, this occurred to me when I was doing my presentation for last year's Van Meter Visitor Festival because I was presenting on the issue of UFO occupant clothing. Um, and I kind of strayed strictly from UFO occupants, and I included, you know, other accounts, too, from cryptozoology and ghosts and things like that. And the interesting thing is that actually I had a particular slide where I was discussing facelessness, and I had some photos that, you know, or photos, illustrations I had collected of one was of yeah. Momo and one was of um, a particular UFO report, and then another one was of the Banshee, and then I also had a haunting. You know, I was just working on it, and I 
you know, went back to it several hours later, and I realized I was looking at the exact same silhouette, you know, the exact same kind of vague outline. It's just that in one case someone said, oh, well, it was a Bigfoot-like creature, and in another case someone said, oh, was, you know, it came out of a UFO. Um, and yeah. so this detail, you know, it is, it's very, very common. And I think that, you know, the interesting thing is that in a way it almost seems like it's kind of unfinished. And this is something I've thought about as it pertains to the concept that these things may be some sort of manifestation, um, especially some sort of temporary form, is that, you know, people have these really bizarre encounters with these strange things, and sometimes it seems as though there's almost just something off about them. And so I think that, again, the facelessness, the idea that maybe whatever this manifestation is, isn't fully formed or fully sourced from whatever source it's using for its mask, you know, I think that might be kind of a dead giveaway there. And two, there's also the functionality of it. You have this thing looking at a car, it doesn't have eyes. Um, so I think that that is yet again just kind of another, it's a nonsensical sort of detail. Um, but again, it's kind of a giveaway to the fact that what we're looking at, you know, isn't really what we suppose it is at first. You know, because again, if we have something looking into a vehicle, theoretically it should probably have eyes and a face with which to look. So, right. yeah, there's kind of an impracticality then to it, um, which you'll see in other aspects as well. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like, it, yeah, in a lot of these, a lot of the cases you could almost say they're like kind of like encounters and almost very often, very often from the perspective of the of the entity almost, they're like encounters that got, that have gone awry. Like yeah. I feel like if whatever whatever the end whatever this force is this thing that you know I think we kind of are on a lot of the, the same page in a way where it's like this all seems to emanate from some kind of like thing that we can't quite put our finger on. Um, yeah. You know I think whatever that thing is I think it would love your book because it would probably be the <laughs> like the bloopers like these are the blue these are the times. These are the times when we fucked up, and <laughs> and you remember when we chased that guy up the tree and the robot and the and the plant you were all were all crazy about that time, you guys. Um, so yeah, that's that very very yeah that's that's one of the cool aspects of the book is when it goes awry that maybe that's when we encounter it or something. Yeah, well, I'm I kind of think of it too in terms of almost like flopped projections. Um, you know, that if we yeah. are thinking of something capable of making these masks, you know, it does seem like there are very strong threads. You know, it's like, um, again, barring actual conventional Bigfoot-type creatures, it does seem like a lot of the time people have these high strangeness encounters with these things that look like Bigfoot. Um, and then, too, you know, even with, I mean, UFO occupants in and of themselves, that is the endless alien parade if we're trying to look at them in terms of actual extraterrestrial beings. Um, because so, so very many of them vary wildly um, description-wise. Um, but still, it seems like there are kind of common threads of how whatever this is manifests. And then in right smack dab in the middle of it, you'll get something totally insane like the Enfield Horror, which apparently had three legs. And so I, I wonder sometimes if, you know, there do seem to be kind of almost preset patterns where these things will manifest and they'll fall into a certain category. And then between the category, you have what Keel termed the incomprehensibles, just absolute off-the-wall bizarre things yeah well i've kind of likened ufos uh that's actually a good segue to another one of my notes uh, but i've kind of likened 
UFOs and maybe the phenomenon in general now uh, is like clouds. And it's like you, there's mm-hmm. all these different kinds of clouds, but I'm sure, I don't know when they figured that out, but up until before that, I'm sure there, were a, lot, like, there was a lot of confusion over <laughs> what these things were yeah. in the sky and their various shapes and whatnot. So I wonder, I kind of liken it to the paranormal to that in a lot of ways, where it's like, okay, we, once we kind of can sort of put these things, you know, kind of categorize them a little or sort of figure them out a little bit, how they're manifesting, we'll be able, we'll understand, okay, the Bigfoot manifested this time because of the, these conditions made it happen. Uh, whether we could ever yeah. get that far and figure that out, I don't know, but that, that I think yeah. that's sort of the trail <laughs> to go down. Now, one hope, one right? thing I, yeah, you would hope, yeah. That feels like the kind of thing you learn in the afterlife, though. Like you die, and then they bring you in a room, and they're like, all right, we're going to explain all this Bigfoot shit to you now, because uh, now you can become a Bigfoot. I'm like, what? Holy shit, thank you. Roll the Bigfoot tape. <laughs> What's that? Roll the Bigfoot film. It's time to reveal all. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um one of the – you mentioned you had a specific – a particular interest in the book, and I was like, well, that's a very peculiar interest because um, I had never really considered it. But you said you really are fascinated by the various shapes of these uh, flying saucers, let's say. That's probably the worst way to uh, – the worst description of the UFOs, <laughs> the various <laughs> shapes of the UFOs. So um, I guess talk about what, what about that interests you and, and what you've sort of – uh, you know, your thoughts on that, because you said it's something that interests you. Yeah, the interest for me is really how there seems to be kind of a lack of consistency. Um, one of the most bizarre aspects of this is that, you know, you'll have like um, a UFO flap going on. And, you know, you'd think, okay, if we're thinking about this again, conventionally from the standpoint of extraterrestrial visitors, They've got their Mark 2.5 FS flying saucer that they park in the backwoods somewhere, and they're flying around at night, and that's what people are seeing. However, the interesting thing is that very often when you have a UFO flap, what you actually have is maybe a few sites. Yeah, there may be like a strong thread again where people are all reporting the same thing. But then amidst those reports, you also have a huge variety of other things being seen, such as, you know, more like soft sightings of just light anomalies, orbs of light you know, or a completely different type of craft-like object, um, you know, at the same time. The Kathy Reeves case of the walking tree stumps is a great example of this because, you know, in the middle of this, this one family was being beset by this poltergeist-type phenomena. She saw the walking tree stumps. Um, there were light anomalies. This was all happening in the midst of a UFO flap where people were seeing things that looked, you know, kind of like what you would consider to be a conventional, like, yeah, flying saucer or some sort of flying craft. They were also seeing huge house-sized spheres of light. One guy even said that he saw spinning Christmas tree lights up in the sky. And then in addition to that, so often when you have a flap of that sort of phenomenon going on, you also have strange creatures. Um, And, of course, in this case, they weren't really creatures per se. She describes them as these walking tree stumps. Um, And then, too, with that, it's almost like it occurs both on a microcosm and a macrocosm because, again, in the midst of this UFO flap, this one particular family is beset by really strong poltergeist manifestations. So that right. is the intriguing thing to me is that you just you can never really you know put your finger on exactly what's going on exactly what's responsible for it because it seems as though when activity flares up it kind of flares up across all boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 
that's uh, again to put over your book. That's what I loved about the book and the cases in the book. And very often they 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 really are sort of this cross section of phenomena happening all at the same time, seemingly connected and maybe not connected. Who knows? But there's you know there's different types of stuff happening at the same time. It's very very weird. Um, you know, and we've all uh, on the show we've long advocated for this sort of idea that like this has to be all connected somehow. So uh, this is one of those reaffirming uh, books. Now I asked you, I, I noted three, so I would feel bad if we didn't uh, do the third one here. We're, we're uh, we got about half hour left. We're doing great. Um, so the Sandown Sam case uh, was the third one I, I brought up in my notes here for you. Um, so would you like to tell folks about this case, please? <laughs> Absolutely. Again, drumroll please, this is one of my favorites. <laughs> so this occurred in May of 1973 um, near Lake Common Sandown in the Isle of Wight in England. And this case has, um, unfortunately, a girl pseudonymously referred to as Faye. Now, again, this is one of these cases where I would love to know who this is and see if they'd be willing to talk about it. But unfortunately, she was referred to under the pseudonym Faye, which I'll admit was a pretty fantastic pseudonym to choose for such a case of high strangeness. Um, she and another boy around her same age were just walking around when they heard this strange noise that they said sounded almost like a siren or a wailing type noise. Um, and that's, again, one of those fantastic details that pops up constantly. So they wanted to find out what it was. They decided to follow it. They went across a golf course near a meadow. Um, they were walking near the Sandown Airport when suddenly, as they hit this particular patch of meadow, the noise just stopped. So as they were crossing this little wooden footbridge, um, which, man, that is quite a symbolic uh, aspect there. This blue-gloved hand actually popped out from under the bridge, and it belonged to this truly strange creature, humanoid thing. Um, it stood about seven feet tall, and in my opinion, this thing sounds almost like some sort of clown automaton. Yeah, I mean, it just it's a really, really weird report. The kids claimed that it was wearing this kind of Pied Piper-like outfit. Um, it had a green tunic with a red collar and a yellow pointed hood, which was attached to the collar. Um, it had only three fingers on each hand and only three toes on each foot. And the entire getup was kind of like tattered. Um, it was super like worn or messed up or something. So in addition to the really bizarre getup, they claimed that the entity had this really flat, round face with simple triangles for eyes, unmoving yellow lips, and instead of a nose, it just had a square. To top it all off, it had this black knob on the top of its head, and on either side of its face were these wooden antennae. So, again, this is a very, very strange description here, um, even yeah. in the midst of all the high strangeness we've been discussing. So this thing emerged from under the bridge, and it was holding onto a book which dropped into the water, and then it was hopping along, and retrieved the book and went to a windowless metal hut nearby. So surprisingly enough, and I absolutely love this aspect, the kids actually didn't care. They saw this thing, and they weren't scared. They weren't interested. They just kind of kept doing what they were doing and wandering along, paying no mind to it. However, when they were about 50 yards away, whatever this thing was showed up near the metal hut, and it was holding some sort of apparatus that looked like a microphone. So at this point in time, the wailing noise started up again, and this actually frightened the boy who started to cry and run away. However, it was at this point that whatever this thing is spoke into the microphone and the voice actually showed up right next to the children. Now, this case is full of really, really bizarre communication styles. 
And this particular one is of interest to me because it kind of calls to mind um, cases that we would more typically associate with hauntings, where people say that they'll see an apparition and they'll hear a voice that looks like it belongs to the apparition. However, the voice shows up right next to their ear and the apparition is moving its lips. Um, and so that's kind of an aspect that kind of popped out to me in this case. But at any rate, the being greeted the children in such a friendly voice that I guess the little boy decided not to be afraid. He and Faye went to get a closer look. And at this point, the second medium to communicate shows up. The thing pulls out a notebook. It wrote out a jumble of words and then pointed at them in order, which Faye spoke aloud. The message read, hello, and I am all colors, Sam. So this started off a pretty long period of time where the children were just talking with this thing. Um, of course, the first question they asked was why his clothing was all tattered. Um, he kind of dodged the question, just said it was his only pair of clothes, um, at which point they asked if he was really a man, to which it replied no. So then, of course, you know, following the children's logic, they said, well, hey, are you a ghost? And the thing said, well, not really, but I am in an odd sort of way. Now, and this case is really, it gets, the further you go in it, it just is kind of a very chilling, really surreal feeling case. Um, and of course, the first thing that popped to my mind is if this was a hoax, it honestly would be more terrifying to me than if it was some true anomaly. Because by the end of the whole encounter, the children actually came to the conclusion that they either talked to a ghost or a man in a costume. Um, I'll be totally honest with you, if it was a guy in a costume, again, I would be much more concerned than if it was, you know, whatever the alternative is. Yeah, because yeah, after, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. Now that you after, bring that up, that yeah, it does creep me. <laughs> yeah, it does creep me out. Well, yeah. They followed him into his windowless hut, um, which yeah. again, I mean, terrible, terrible idea on many levels. There, um, they claimed that inside yeah, yeah. it was kind of downright cozy on one story. It had a wooden um, furniture, electric heater, wallpaper, whereas the other story was smaller and metallic. Um, so again, this is a really just infinitely strange case. Once they were inside the hut, they spent about half an hour talking to this thing about just a variety of things. Um, Sam, as he christened himself, told them that he had an additional camp on the mainland where there were others like him. He said that he had to clean the river water to drink it um, and that he ate berries, which he gathered in the late afternoons. Um, and then kind of the whole thing climaxed with him doing this weird conjuring trick where he actually put a berry in his ear, nodded his head forward, it vanished, reappeared in one of his eyes, and then he did it again and the berry ended up in his mouth. So, again, lots of weird stuff going on here. Eventually the kids just said that they had to get going and so they left. Now, <laughs> interestingly enough, they ran to tell the nearest adult they had seen a ghost. And the first adult that they saw was a workman who apparently had been working in the vicinity the entire length of the encounter. And he just laughed at them. So this case, unfortunately, Faye, the main reporting witness, I guess you could say, didn't bother to tell anyone until June. So her father, oh, wow. referred to in the accounts as Mr. Y, um, it actually gets even weirder from here. Because, of course, you know, such a bizarre case like this, and especially with kids, people always go like, oh, well, they were kids, they made it up, or whatever. There are a few aspects, strictly from their portion of the encounter, that seem really weird and kind of in line well with folklore to me, specifically when Sam was talking about how he had to clean the river water um, and how he picked berries at a particular time in the afternoon. That really kind of has, you know, echoes throughout the fairy face, um, especially the berry thing. I mean, that comes up a lot. Um, but two, you know, that there was a particular time where he gathered them. You can see that belief you know, people were actually told, don't go and pick berries at this time. That is when the good folk are out. Um, so that's 
really intriguing. However, the thing that also kind of amps up the concept to me that this may have been indeed something anomalous is the fact that Faye's father, Mr. Y, claimed that he had had years experiences with anomalous lights. Um, he claimed that it started with, you know, what we kind of term like orbs of light, which followed him to the point that he actually got bored of looking at them on one particular occasion and just went to visit with a friend. When he came back out to the car, they were still there. Um, these lights continued for many years, finally kind of climaxing with a sighting where he saw these two large lights out in the ocean. He said that they looked like eyes. Um, so again, you kind of have that familial um, sort of shared weirdness in this case. Um, where for many years he had had these kind of, yeah, not very dramatic UFO encounters, but still pretty persistent. And then suddenly you have the intensely strange Sandown Sam encounter, which his daughter had. Um, and two, this is one of those cases where I would love to know what happened after that, because it seems as though, in a way, kind of the phenomenon amped up. You know, he had had these sightings of light for many years, and then suddenly his daughter has this case of incredibly high contact. Um, yeah. You just have to wonder, did it stop there? Did it continue? Did it get worse? You know, I would love to know that. Yeah, that was uh, – yeah, that, that's exactly like one of the ones I was kind of talking about too where you, you really would love to hear from these people again. Now, where did this story originate in the first place? Like who, who reported was, on um, this? The Before us, so the British UFO Research Association Journal. Um, and actually, that's ah. how they introduced this case, too. They said, report extra, Ghost or Spaceman 73, which, I mean, you can't beat that title. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, how did, I guess the, the one thing that kind of tripped me up when I was reading it, uh, especially hearing it again, because I've forgotten that he was tall, how did he fit into the little hut? Did they ever... <laughs> <laughs> did they ever explain that? Because that was, to me, when that happened in the story, then I'm like, all right, now we're into, like, some kind of uh, fairy story here because, like, they're going to well, go into the hut, and the hut's going to be, you know, enormous. Almost like what you hear from people who encounter aliens. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, we went into the thing, and it was, turned, you know, we once we went into the little egg, it, it was yeah. like, you know, like the Mall of America inside. It was crazy. I was going to make a joke about a clown car, but this is definitely way more in the vein of what, um, of some parallels. Because, yeah, I mean, there are so many encounters, again, and especially to the fact that this actually occurred, you know, on the Isle of Wight, which does have such a strong history um, with the fairies. You know, there are a lot of encou uh, encounters with the fairies where it's like, yeah, people will see, you know, their home in the side of a mountain or in a hill, and then once inside it's this gorgeous palace. Um, and I do think there are definitely parallels to, you know, that's something that's even bothered me with UFO encounters. Because for a time, you know, when I was in my late teens before reading Keel's work, I was really interested in specifically the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I really was, you know, that was like my focus at that time. And the thing that bothered me, no matter how many times I tried to figure it out, is how you have these admittedly kind of small craft and there's how many guys, you know, little entities just living inside of it. Um, that's something that bothered me to no end, and especially, too, once you have people who believe they've been taken into the craft. You know, it does seem kind of magical that you'll have these things that seem pretty self-contained, and then it's like, you know, people are wandering circular halls for days and days and days. Yeah, yeah. It's very <clears throat> it's very weird, that the transition there from, yeah, terra firma to whatever they're coming from is is mystifying. 
Uh, let me see here. What else we got going on here? Uh, I'm kind of blowing through the notes here. You're a very fast answerer. I like that. It gives me a chance to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, well, I was going to say, I should tip you off to this case uh, that Adam Davies did on the show where... Uh, he ex- this is an experience. I don't know if you know who Adam Davies is. He's a cryptozoologist. Oh yeah. But he came on the show. This is like the most famous banal America ever. Because uh, he had this experience. It sounds a lot like the kind of stuff in the book. Because he and and another guy. Uh, I want to say I, I I don't recall his name off the top of my head. So I better not just uh, make up some name. But anyway, he and a friend who I knew also. Um, they went out to the woods and. Well, they ostensibly on a Bigfoot hunt, and, like, down in this field, all of a sudden this portal opened, and these little creatures came out and started running towards them. And when they flashed their flashlights at the creatures, they ran back into the portal, and the portal closed. And it was like the story we talked about earlier, the Three Ring Circus. It kept happening to them all through the night. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, I will. When I send you the link with the with the Hopkinsville, or I, I was confused that Kelly Goblin, um, I'll send you the link to that. But all of America, but that yeah, this people are astounded by this story. They still talk about it to this day. But yeah, he it, it's pretty wild. And I've I've met Adam and talked to him about it. And it's like I knew Adam before this happened, so I can't imagine I can't foresee him and another person making up this insane story. Yeah. So, uh, and we go back to earlier about like where do you find the good stories? This one kind of fell on my lap, but it's uh, yeah, it's a wild one. That is amazing. Uh, well, oh, sorry, yeah. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just, I'm literally just astounded. I think that you know someone told me, oh, you should like mention that particular story. Like, yeah, you need to hear about this. But I just you know that happens so often where I'm like, okay, yeah write it down somewhere and then forget about it, but I will have to look into that. That is amazing. Yeah, it only happened like three or four years ago, maybe five or six now, I don't know, but, you know, it's within the last ten years. It's a wild, it's a really wild story. They were really shaken up by it. That's what, When I was reading that Three Ring Circus, it reminded me a lot of Adam's experience, because uh, they were terrified like the whole night. Um, yeah. So, but it's interesting what made me think of also that in the book was you mentioned uh, just this connection with light. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's something, there's like these flashes, the light precedes this stuff uh, or, yeah. or has some kind of like tangible connection that we can't quite put our finger on yet. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. And I know that, you know, that's something too. And I've, the, one of the things I've loved most about writing this book is that, you know, it is, it's kind of a companion piece to my YouTube channel. I've covered these cases prior on my channel um, of course, in the book, I have the room to, you know, talk about them to a much greater extent and include extra little factoids. Um, but two, one of the greatest joys for me was actually being able to revisit some that I did, you know, a couple of years ago and pick out new patterns that I've just picked up on. And one of them is that many of these experiences, they are, they're directly preceded, almost kicked off um, either by a light anomaly or a strange sound. Um, and I think that, I think there's something to that. It really seems as though, you know, the actual event, what we would consider to be, you know, kind of the important part. Of course, Keel in Operation Trojan Horse kind of discussed this idea where people are so focused on specifically like the hard sightings, you know, especially like we're just looking at UFOs, like the craft, how big was it, what color was it, you know, how high was it, all of those particulars. 
um, and they ignore the softer sightings of like, yeah, anomalous lights or, you know, possible like ESP type phenomena. And, you know, I think that's the intriguing thing is that in a lot of these cases, the hard and fast encounter with, you know, the thing that seems really bizarre and that is taking a lot of the attention, it really seems to be ushered in by something a lot more vague. And it usually is, again, yeah, a light anomaly or a strange noise. I know Joshua Kutchin talks about how um, some encounters even strange smells, things like that. Um, almost like it's some sort of priming mechanism um, for the person who's about to witness, you know, the intense, crazy experience that then we end up talking about. Um, but no, yeah, light anomalies too. The interesting thing is that on mundane lights, it really seems as though that's one of the greatest effects we can have in turn on the phenomena. Because, um, yeah, even, you know, if we're looking at Cisco Grove, the fire, these things were so afraid of the fire that even the mothership responded. Um, of course, yeah. there's the infamous partridge encounter where the strange spinning lights seem to be reacting to his flashlight. Keel talked about how he would signal these nocturnal lights with his flashlight. Um, so strangely enough, it seems as though one of the greatest effects that we can have on whatever these anomalies are is also through the use of light. Um, and that's yeah. definitely that's something I've picked up on as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what. Uh, in some instances, yeah, there was some, something with. It might have been the fire part where, but it was like, yeah, where I'm like, that's just like what happened with Adam. They had, they flashed their lights yeah. at it, and the thing like took off. Um, yeah, it's really <laughs> it's a great story. I'll send you the link to the episode. It's uh, it's pretty it's legendary. It's probably our our most famous episode. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting too. You mentioned sort of this priming thing, and uh. In addition, it's very catchy, and actually, it's funny that you mentioned, Josh, because uh, beyond the smells, it, there was an aspect in the book, too, that I thought was interesting. It's kind of like, uh, it's like I could see Koch or someone else pulling this out and, and sort of exploring this just out on its own, but just the sounds are interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, when you talked about flicks, you mentioned you made these really strange sounds. And in a lot of the cases, too, there's this sort of, like, uh, it made me think, I don't know if you watched Lost, but it made me think of Lost, uh, where the smoke monster uh, would, like, you know, f uh, run through the jungle, flow through the jungle like a little tornado. And and it was accompanied by this, like, mysterious, no one really could put their finger on some product of the people who made the show, the sound department, but it was like this cranking, metallic, like, click, 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 like this kind of, like, Ooh. creepy, like a dumpster being dumped but you you know and it was like emanating from this cloud uh and that made me some of the stuff in the book reminded me of that where it's like there's this sort of like metallic uh this machinery sound that makes yeah. no makes no it has it's completely uh incomprehensible with the situation yeah and there's a weird you know kind of balance too because machinery noises that's popped up in a lot of cases and people it's weird because, you know, poltergeist cases, you know, again, we kind of think of that in terms almost of something closer to hauntings, which in a sense, even though, you know, it's kind of the opposite, we almost think of more organic type noises with hauntings and ghosts because, you know, we figure them to be spirits of the departed. Um, but no, you have these poltergeist encounters where there's machinery noises, even, even some Bigfoot encounters um, that include that. And of course, the one that it makes sense, UFOs, I mean, every now and again, you'll see that as well. But then on the flip side too, you get this odd wailing noise or baby crying noise. Um, or even just disembodied voices. And, you know, all of these seem to pop up time and time again. And, you know, in some of these cases, too, such as the infamous Sandown encounter, they seem to precede the big anomaly. Um, yeah, there, there's just so many of these, 
you know, tiny little aspects, which, you know, taken alone, it just seems kind of like, okay, that's just a weird detail. But then you start picking them up in cases from a completely different field of research. And you start to wonder, you know, what exactly, what is the meaning of all this? Yeah, well, that's why we that's why we do this, right? Because these yeah. uh, crazy crazy questions. Now you mentioned you spoke at the Van Meter Festival, uh, and I'm mm-hmm. super jealous because uh, I was looking at it, and it was sort of like that was like uh, like the dessert on the menu or something this past summer, where it was like uh, I really really uh, really would like to go to that Van Meter Festival. It looks really cool. Um, but I, I, obviously, you could talk a little bit about that, and I was just kind of wondering: Have you been to, aside from Van Meter, of course, uh, have you been to any of these places where some of this stuff happened? I know some of these places are like little t- obscure little towns, but there's other ones like Pascagoula or, or uh, you know, the Mothman story. If you maybe you've gone there, but you know, have you done any traveling to sort of see any of these places firsthand? Not in a big way. I mean. From Wisconsin, I visited a lot of places locally. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm definitely not running out of anything around here. But, no, and my big, like, series, like, my mecca is Point Pleasant. I've been wanting to get there for so long. Um, my first time at Van Meter was actually 2019. That was my first big, like, you know, speaking engagement. And, yeah. of course, then, you know, 2020 happened, and so everything was kind of just put on hold. So, but, yeah, no, Point Pleasant is, like, that is probably number one on my list. I really, really want to hit Point Pleasant and just see – you know, I mean, again, I'm a major fanatic of John Keel. So to, like, be in that same area, make that pilgrimage kind of, I know it sounds um, kind of, I don't know, religious, but that is, like, that's first on my list, I would say. All right, yeah. I've never been. I've, I've wanted to go and check it out, too. Uh, it sounds uh, it, it sounds pretty cool. It sounds sort of like Roswellian. Um, so I would definitely love to check check that out. Uh, yeah, well, I may check out to, uh, I'm fascinated by this Dover Demon. I didn't realize it was sort of an anniversary coming up, like, in April, so I might, I might, I'd love to see where they saw that thing out there. That's pretty close to where I am, Dover, Mass. Um, so I'd like to go and check that out, but, yeah, sometimes it's, it's neat to go to these different places where they have these, this sort of identity attached to them. Oh, definitely. Uh, And I know just to see, like, you know, like one of my favorite examples, of course, too, because it's a very personal case for me, is the No Elephant, the very first case in the book. Um, really bizarre story, possible apport. Some people have tried to tie it to alien abduction. Um, at any rate, very, very bizarre case. And it's so neat because, and I, I mean, I've gone to that particular mound dozens, if not hundreds of times, because it's, again, right in Platteville where my grandma lives. And actually, it's the big M. You know, it's the largest hillside M in the world, so you can climb to the top. But if you just snake around the other side of the mound, that house is still standing where it occurred. And so, yeah, just to be able to, like, go there. And of course, it's on private property, so, you know, I didn't do any trespassing. But to just stand on the road and, like, look at it, you know, it's just, it's amazing to think, yeah, this is where that all occurred. So... Yeah, I've been trying to kind of do that more often the last few years. It's obviously it's tough with the pandemic and everything, but uh, yeah, I, I went on a trip, uh, Paramania, which Zach Copley in the chat remember, uh, to uh, Dealey Plaza and uh, and Aurora, and it kind of like lit this fire under me where it was like, I'd like to see these places where this stuff yeah. happened, you know, to get a feel for it. Because when you're in Dealey Plaza, you like look around, you're like, holy shit! Like at one point, this was like yeah. the center of the universe. 
Uh, like the the world changed in the spot yeah. I'm at. This is pretty wild. Um, oh, so, great. what's that? Sorry. Oh, I thought you said something. I'm sorry. Oh no, I just said definitely. There. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I told you when I was setting up this show, I'm a little rusty here from uh, a couple months off uh, doing the program. Hey, but I didn't. I've, I didn't notice at that? all. I oh, did not. Oh, well, there you go. Thank you. Um, so what do you, obviously you just came out with the book, so you thinking about doing, uh, another book is probably like, you, you gotta do all the book promotion now, so, but have you thought about, you know, this is the classic end show question, like, what's next for you? What do you, you know, what, uh, what do you have up your sleeve? Well, I am actually really excited to say that I have signed for a second, um, edition of Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents with Beyond the Fray. Um, so that's... Awesome. Probably later this year, I imagine. Not really sure, but in the near future. Um, you can look out for that. And other than that, just keeping up on my YouTube channel. Um, so, you know, lots of new cases I'm really excited about. And then I'm also really hoping to start releasing investigation videos. Um, just kind of, you know, offer that on there as well. So that's kind of my next, like, big project, my big thing on the to-do list is, you know, What's adding What do you mean, in. an investigation? What's the, what do you mean like, investigation you know, from, videos? Um, like, you know, going to a location and actually doing, like, you know, an investigation. I really want to hit, like, a few different places in Wisconsin for ghosts especially because um, we've got so many haunted locations and, of course, Bigfoot and Dogman. So I've never released a video like that. Um, I There's a lot of work involved with, like, trying to figure out the cameras and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's going to take some figuring it out, but um, that's kind of next on my list of what I'm looking forward to doing. So, yeah, really excited about that. Have you? Oh, and then. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, and then um, I am speaking at the Beast of Bray Road celebration end of April. Um, so, that I'm also super thrilled about because, of course, Beast of Bray Road, Linda Godfrey, that was a huge inspiration to me um, when I first became interested in this. So, I'm really excited about that one, too. Yeah, Linda's awesome. Linda's awesome. Uh, like I said, she's she's really carved out a, a niche for herself and really, you know, done an amazing job putting this thing on the map. The uh, the Dogman's a fascinating phenomenon in general because it's like, unlike a lot of these cases in the book, this is this is like this seems to be a recurring thing. And uh, yeah, some of the shit gets lumped in with the Dogman, but it seems like this there's enough commonality here where you can kind of like set it aside as like okay this is a thing this is like this yeah. is a thing whatever this dog man thing is it's a thing um yeah i remember seeing her in portland and she kind of like not unlike uh some of the stuff in your book she made this point that i was like oh wow yeah where it's like the dog man shouldn't just the way dogs bodies are like it shouldn't be able to walk around like that it's like not physically possible so it's like okay how is this <laughs> how is this yeah. even working i don't understand it um oh yeah now you said you i'm intrigued a little bit about this investigation part we got like five minutes left so have you been on a goat so are these gonna be like ghost hunts it's going so to be speak? a little of everything um okay yeah i mean yeah i'm still trying to figure out exactly where to start um yeah i'm Really excited about it, right. I have to admit. So, yeah, but ghosts, I'm intrigued. Uh, UFOs, yeah. cryptids, pretty much everything I've covered case-wise on my channel. I'm going to try and um, figure out a few really good locations to 
yeah, get some investigations going and get those out. So interesting. Yeah, I've only ghost hunted a few times. It's it's a it it's it tries your patience. I find <laughs> I find. Well, yeah. so it tries my patience. Yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, I mean it it's not going to be like, you know, some roller coaster of like, oh yeah, we got this, we got that. I'm sure that it's mainly going to be be me sitting there and be like, Well, this is why I chose this location. Uh this is what's been reported here and uh now we're just sitting in the dark. <laughs> but I mean that's that's my plan is to like choose a case and then go to the location and kind of, you know, do a full package deal there, I guess you could say. Interesting. So, well that sounds cool. Yeah. That sounds cool. Well, I'm sure people will keep an eye out for it. So the YouTube channel is uh just another tinfoil hat, right? Is there like yep. do you have a URL for that that I guess people just punch that in. And uh yeah, they can go to just a yeah. Well, you've done an amazing job getting see, you're way more uh, I talked to Amanda Paulson earlier uh, back in December, and she's kind of the same way uh, as you. You guys have you guys have it together here. Like you, <laughs> I can click on this thing, and there's a little thing that takes me to their Facebook page and or your Facebook page, and I can go to your Instagram or whatever. My my site's just kind of like a mess. Um, so people can go to justanothertenfoilhack.com, and that's where they can find out about the book. They can go onto the YouTube, the Facebook, the Instagram. Um, all that good stuff. So uh, I, I love this conversation. I absolutely adored the book. It was amazing. It really was. It was what I what I like about you, Zelia, is because uh, I feel old nowadays because I've been doing this for like twenty years almost now, and um, it's like I a big part of the show was sort of holding up these people that I really had a lot of respect for and kind of grew up listening to or. or uh, uh, you know, reading and, and following the research, like Stan Friedman and Lauren Coleman and Jim Mars and Brad Steiger and, and uh, later years like Greg Bishop and um, some of my other friends, Adam Go Rightly and stuff like that. So, uh, and as I get older, it's like a lot of these, the real like super icons, they're kind of gone. It's like, oh, geez, man. It's like, it's just, uh, I hope other people, I hope, you know, I hope it wasn't the last generation of people to appreciate their stuff. And then I see you come along with your work, and it's like, oh, she's keeping this stuff alive in a big way. Um, you know, and and so I have I have faith that this is going to keep going and everything. So I I really am impressed by, in a big way by your work in that sense. Well, thank you so much. I, that really means a lot because again, growing up interested in this, you know, paranormal researchers and authors, these were the people I looked up to. You know, they were my role models. And so it's just, yeah, having this book and being involved in the field is just kind of surreal for me. So really, thank you so much. Well, you're doing an awesome job, for real. You're doing an awesome job. And, uh, yeah, I like the classic stuff way better than what's going on nowadays anyway. So it's hard to really <laughs> – and I appreciate that anyone is uh, keeping keeping the classic stuff alive. So keep up the awesome work. Uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have you back on the show at some point. Uh, I that that's more of a <laughs> commentary on me than you. I have to now explain to the folks uh, why I've been gone for two months. But uh, but you know, once uh, as the show keeps rolling along, uh, I definitely want to get you back on to talk about stuff. And uh, when you do this investigation thing, that would be a great jumping off point to talk about it, or when the next book comes out, or you know, whenever else you have uh, something exciting up your sleeve, I definitely will talk again. Nice. Sounds awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show tonight. This was a super fun conversation, so thank you.
Awesome. All right. Well, have a good night. Yeah, you too. All right. All right, folks. There you go. That was uh, Zelia Edgar, and the book is, one more time, let me see where it is, Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents, and it's from Beyond the Fray Publishing. And, uh, yeah, so where have I been for the last two months? So here's what happened, folks. I'm going to keep this short because I don't want to get, like, all uh, emotional. So uh, so as anyone who follows the show knows, I have a rabbit or had a rabbit, uh, Sir Ralphus, and he was a big part of our family. We had him for, like, 11 years. He just celebrated his 11th birthday back in December. And shortly after we did the uh, the year in review with Greg Bishop, Poor old uh, Sir Ralphus, he crossed the Rainbow Bridge uh, on January 11th. And I'll be honest with you folks, I I never had a pet that long. So to me it was like I know people who lose pets, and I'm like, oh, geez, you know, get over it. Your cat died. I Folks, for, any, for anyone who I ever thought that about uh, or ever, you know, any time I ever thought that, I am so sorry. I was so wrong. I was so ignorant. It was this was a profound pain that I had never experienced uh before in a completely like wholly different way than even someone a person dying. It was like this bizarre uh experience. So and and uh, as my friend Steve Berg said, it uh it'll wreck you and I really didn't realize that uh you know, I never I never I never really <laughs> uh I never really kind of like prepared myself or thought about what that experience would be like, but it was it was it was terrible. So essentially, uh, you know, I was pretty fucking bummed out for like all of January and most of February until I kind of uh was like, "Oh man, I'm really bummed out. I got to stop being bummed out. I got to kind of like, you know, I got to kind of process all this and and keep keep the train rolling on the tracks." So, you know, salute to Sir Ralphus uh he is super missed uh it's a very strange experience uh i used to spend time you know i would come up in the morning and and have coffee and sit with him and watch the news it's like the, all these little things you you can't do anymore or uh you can't experience and just gone uh like in in a blink of an eye so it's very it was just super fucking bizarre <laughs> just really 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 uh not not anything i uh ever thought I would experience. Um, I hadn't really given it any thought. So for anyone who's ever lost a pet after a long time, I I have this, I share your pain now in a way that I never understood until now. So, you know, it really fucking sucks. And, uh, yeah, so that's where I've been. So, you know, uh, I'm back now. We've got shows scheduled. Ironically, we don't have a show for next week yet, but I know who I want to reach out to. So, uh you know, we should have a show. Obviously, if you maybe you figured this out if you're listening live, we're on Fridays now. Uh, we're back on Fridays instead of Tuesdays, and yeah, we're gonna keep doing shows here at least through the winter, this doomed winter of weirdness, uh, which I'll probably never use again as a <laughs> as a season title after the last two years. Um, but yeah, we'll do another you know six weeks or so of shows and and see where we are uh, as the spring starts. And and uh, continue from there. So, thank you. I mean, I would say thank you for your patience. But you, if you're listening by now, and at this point in the show, you've been listening like forever. So you know, been all of America, and you've been around for 
you know, 15-something years. So, you know, this is the journey. <laughs> this is this is my journey. So, um, but thank you for your patience for all the people who were like, where the fuck did Benal go? Uh, I thought he was bringing back the show. Well, yeah, I did. And then fucking Ralph has died on me, so I got to... I got to tend to my tend to my garden here, but all that is uh, behind us. So next week, Friday night, 9 p.m., we ought to have a show, and I know for certain uh, in two weeks at 9 p.m. we will, and in three weeks at 9 p.m. we will. So we're putting the puzzle pieces back together, um, and uh, yeah. So I think that's it. I think that's all we're going to talk about tonight. Um, and on that note, once again, thank you to Zelia Edgar. The book is Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents. Get it, folks. Go out and get it. You're going to love it. I absolutely loved it. Um, it's it's formatted fantastically. The stories are absolutely amazing. Um, and and uh, Z is a fantastic writer. It's funny, funny as hell, um, and has all kinds of cool and interesting observations that I was like, whoa, I never thought of that. So, yeah, definitely I give it my highest recommendation. Um, just another tinfoil hat presents. And with all that said, we'll, uh, we'll call it a night. So, Thank you to everybody uh, who tuned in in the chat on the live show. Thanks for everybody listening on the MP3 later on uh, on the weekend. And until next time, this is Tim Benall thanking you again for listening. <laughs>